Hello everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, Patreon episode 32, The Sworn Sword, featuring a very, very, very special guest, the Sir Joe Buckley. Hello, thanks for having me. Oh my god, this is so exciting. You all know who we are. We shouldn't have to tell you, but, you know, I'm Eliana and she's Chloe. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm Chloe, she's Eliana, and... Thank you so much for coming on. Joe, this is so exciting because this is something that should have happened <laughs> several years ago. Maybe it's going to be a little more sober than when it did take place. But I am excited to talk about The Sworn Sword, the second dunk in egg novella with you, Joe. If you don't know Joe, you should. He's all over the internet, over at Tower of the Hand, where you can read a bunch of really good summary and analysis from him, as well as his own podcast, Isle of Faces, we got a really, really uh, great chance to hang out with him there a while mm. ago where we talked about Girls Gone Canon. And you might know his series, ongoing series right now, kind of going alongside History of Westeros' reread, Valar Rereadus, Some Scraps and Scrolls. So Joe, go ahead and let us know what's up recently. Where, What else are you working on? What are some things you're hoping to put out this year? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we finished, we wrapped up A Dance with Dragons, both History of Westeros and mm. The Isle of Faces. So we've been on a little break. It's been quite nice, a bit different, because dance can get just a little bit intense. And we ended up yeah. with four-hour episodes and five-hour episodes, and I didn't sleep for three weeks and things like that. So oh, I've had a little no. bit of time off. That's been nice. Uh, just made sure I still had a wife and I was still in the right house and everything <laughs> like that. And um, and yeah, and really, since then, we've just been ramping up for whatever's next. I've been in contact with some of my patrons and asking people what they want to do because the door's kind of wide open. That's the brilliance of the series. We're never really short of material, as you guys prove all the time as well. So there's uh, there's more stuff to be coming just yet. Yeah. That's exciting. I'm, I'm happy that, you know, you've gotten your life back. It's never fun mm. to have to do the, the, the sprints. So congratulations on wrapping up dance any chance you can tell us a little bit about what what are some potential things that might be coming up on the horizon well i'm going to be helping aziz and Ashea again they're going to be starting the winds of uh, winter preview chapters i think this pretty soon so uh, mm -hmm. i'll be helping with those again we might get to those on the podcast i've put a fair few options too many options is my problem i have too many ideas to actually <laughs> put into into practice and we'll get to them all eventually but we will do a dna at some point we will do uh, the preview chapters and fire and blood and anything anyone requests of me really it's not really a matter of what i'll do it's just when i'll do it and what people want to hmm. hear first so it'll, it'll, it'll all come yeah fun yeah there's one thing that we're lucky about is the plethora of content mm -hmm. right when so the great lore behind covering the sworn sword with joe buckley today <laughs> is that once upon a time Back in 2018, there was a podcast called Drunk, A Song of Ice and Fire History that a person ran and stopped running because of her health and sobriety. Um, <clears throat> I don't know who she was. Who was that girl? Who is she? Uh, but Joe Buckley and I recorded a very long podcast where we, we were a little sloshed, a tad sloshed, uh, about the sword sword. We talked everything in anything about the sworn sword also about merlin which may come up again you never know we might have some merlin i can chatter. confirm it will <laughs> i'm not coming on not talking about merlin <laughs> but it was actually like the sequel uh and really I, my computer fried what happened was i had a motherboard fry and i lost a computer and i lost uh the i have joe's audio i just lost my audio it's absolutely gone 
So we're redoing it today. And what's crazy is this is the podcast that took place right after Eliana and I had Mm. recorded for our very first time together. So it was nothing personal, Joe. It was just my heart belonged to Eliana, who also recorded a five-hour podcast on the Hedge Night with me. And then we fell in love that night and birthed this podcast. (laughs) So this is an apology. I'm entering you into my, my marriage bed here with Eliana to apologize for my behavior. I should never have led you on with the sworn sword. And we're going to do it today, live. And we had a new book since then. We had Fire yeah. and Blood. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to talk some of that too. So I think we're all new people here, right? We've all maybe atoned for our previous sins and we're going to have a great episode. There's an alternate new. universe maybe where you and Joe have like a girls and guy god, <laughs> girl, girl and guy god canon. <laughs> Wow, what will we have named that, it, I think Joe? that's it. That that's the name. Well, right? I think I think Ariana <laughs> hit it. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't have the same spice. No offense, Joe. It doesn't have the same. I don't know. We'll have to think about it. Maybe we'll come up with it during the episode. Oh, we, you, we, it could, could have been be Chloe it. and Joey, um, or Chloe and Joe. Oh, that's good. No, <laughs> Chloe and Joey. Oh, ooh, ooh, yeah. Or like I don't know. Well, it's not too late. Do something a swaffy, it's not but. Too late. Just start it out late. there. I could still dump you. Yeah, you could. <laughs> yeah, you could. <laughs> uh, we won't get morbid now, but we have discussed like what happens, you know, if one of us can't do it anymore. And, I have, I, 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 I have someone in my will. I don't actually have a will, but in theory, the will of who I think should be my replacement. But yeah, and I've discussed this with Chloe. Oh, <laughs> my what? Wait, you have willed someone? Into- I- okay, this is getting weird. Anyways. Thanks again, Joe. We are going to keep talking, but first we have a lightning round. If you are listening in and you're not familiar with our usual ASWAF episodes, this is brave. Good for you. Glad to have you. And we like to summarize what we've missed, right? And we've missed the Hedge Knight. Uh, the Hedge Knight is not something we've covered on this podcast. Just putting that out there. We have not covered the Hedge Knight. You do not know our thoughts on the Hedge Knight, me and Eliana's, unless you've listened to the lore to drunk a swaf but that's like a different us you know but anyway who were they uh it was a different me i change every day you know Mm -hmm. i don't even know who i was last week so we are going to kind of chat about what we missed in a quick lightning round in the hedge night sir duncan the tall must bury his mentor before faking his way into the tourney at ashford but a young boy with a bald egg-shaped head has interrupted these plans Taking young Caillou to Squire, Dunk faces many frustrations on the way. No money, no status, and more problems. He gets himself in the tourney, but reacts to vile behavior from a royal prince, which lands him kind of in a cell, and he demands trial by combat, but the vile prince demands a trial by seven. His squire pulls a ta-da and reveals he is not Caillou. He is a crown prince of these seven kingdoms, Aegon, and he helps gather people to Dunk's cause. A lot of people die and get injured for no reason. A brother kills a brother. It's a romp, anyway. And Dunk comes out just barely alive. And Egg is able to squire for him forever and ever. And they go off and have the best of lives. Nothing bad ever happens. The end. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah, that was the objective story, right? (laughs) It was. And here's where that story goes. We start off in 211 AC. A year and a half after the Hedge Knight, and Duck and Egg have come across some dead men in cages. Real fun. Egg wonders if they were in an outlaw band, while Duck explains to him that the likely causes of the caging were just, you know, boring survival stuff for poor people. We have a line here of, It could be they were in some outlaw band. At dusk, they'd heard 
a harper sing the day they hanged Black Robin. Ever since, Egg had been seeing gallant outlaws behind every bush. <sighs> to be back in a Duncan Egg novella does feel so refreshing. Uh, it's one of those things I'm not constantly rereading mm. these, so whenever I reread it, I'm just like, ah, home, you know, a story you read at bedtime. This was released after Feast Dance, right? Right around the same time, there's a crap ton of imagery uh -huh. here, right? When you start the story of crows devouring people and gallant outlaws, and it just screams the Brotherhood, Lady Stoneheart. I mean, one of the men in the cages is even missing his tongue. He's been silenced. I love this line that comes up. There were no songs about him that Dunk knew. Outlaws or poachers makes no matter. Dead men make poor company. Feels like something straight out of a Brienne or a Davos chapter. There's even a good amount of Blackfire Rebellion starting to creep in, which we're going to talk about, getting us kind of pumped up for the mystery night, but also for Aegon's entrance in Maine, A Song of Ice and Fire. It stands to reason, as we go on in the novellas, She-Wolves of Winterfell will likely have some strong themes tying into the Winterfell inheritance and the Winds of Winter, and it would make sense that A Dream of Springs has a novella to accompany it as well with some of the ending of Duncan Egg. You know, castles blowing up, betrayal, murder, sacrifices, Kingsguard. I don't know, it seems seems thematically resonant. Yeah. Recently, George updated his blog, and I'm not a big stalker of the blog just because I think it feeds into the hype. I want to let the man live his life. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be one of those, like, when's the book coming out, George? But he said something about Duncan Egg that I, I know all of us were like, oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. George, and he said, you all know what is on my plate in prose. I need to finish Winds and then maybe write another Duncan Egg novella and get right into A Dream of Spring. And in between, edit some more Wildcards books. I, I think really, really specifically that he uses these books as the springing board between books, right? And for him to work out and sandbox some of these ideas. We see it a lot with Fire and Blood and some of the plots that will definitely have some echoes in the main series going forward. But I love that the Duncan Egg novellas kind of help him uh, help him get in the mood for the next book. Yeah, uh, the, the Duncan Egg novellas are a treat. I don't know if I feel like this one feels as bedtime story-y as like The Hedge Knight. For me, I, yeah. I think this is the darkest of the three novellas that are out, not three, but the three Duncan Egg novellas that are out right now. And yeah, I, I'm curious what we will get in the next one, because all of these you can really, besides the sandboxing, kind of see like the way that he's exploring different themes, right? And and what to keep an eye out for in the story, and, and also uh, what you can anticipate in the next book, right? Like there's a lot of Blood Raven talk in this one, which we'll talk about, and also in, of course, The Mystery Night. It, it, this one also screams the broken man. Yes, You know, there's so does. much of a war. This is wartime in Westeros, and we've seen it before, and now we're seeing it up close through Dunk. I do think our view on Aegon in this book is particularly precious, though, and we do get kind of a look at him because he's sprouting up fast, right? We have this line, He was ten, not quite five feet tall. Of late, he had been sprouting fast, though he had a long, long way to grow before he'd catch up to Dunk. He looked just like the stable boy he wasn't, and not at all like who he really was. Yeah, it's weird. A year and a half that's passed between the two books, which is probably pretty surprising the first time you read them. You might not have expected that amount of time to have been expanded. That's a really long time for a child that young. There's a lot can change physically, emotionally, mentally. So the egg we have here is going to be a very different 
person to who we had in the hedge night. And you could probably say the same for Dunk as well. He thinks he's 18 to 20, somewhere in that. There's lots of changes to happen at that age as well. So this is going to be a much progressed duo, I would assume. Yeah, he's 10 in this book, a little bit past 10, right? It's been mm. a year and a half. And in Mystery Night, I think he's 11, 12, 13. And it does make me think we'll see a considerable time jump maybe between the next couple novellas, uh, at least the last novella. I mean, Egg doesn't rule until 33, but it's interesting to see this as almost a coming-of-age story for him, right? Uh, in the last book, he was coming to kind of understand anything about small folk and his family and just kind of the relationship between them. And now this book, Dunk is really teaching him about this class structure going on in Westeros that we're going to get into. And he's getting these fundamental learning blocks for his reign later with adventures and Dunk. Yeah, I actually wonder if later tales are going to have him at a much more advanced age. Like if we're going to see proper later teenager or even young man, Aegon, whether we're going to see that uh, that advancement in age put some strain on the relationship with him and Dunk. Maybe like we see with, with actual Aegon, Faye Hagen and John Connington in the series where you know he's starting to think, well, maybe I don't want to listen to you as much. Maybe I want to do what I want for a change. And uh, hey, I am a Targaryen, you listen to me. And if we have to see them kind of adapt to that new relationship before assumedly they jump up again when they go back down go back down south and have the partnership we know they eventually get to but maybe there's a, a rocky road that we're going to cover cover first yeah i mean it, there's something very much in this when you see that like that is between them his class and his royalty and that signifier and bringing that up the rebellion it, it's interesting because dunk being made a kingsguard member that is the highest honor for a knight which we obviously know that Dunk gets blushy anyone's like, hey, Knight Dunk. And he's like, I'm a knight, I swear. <laughs> uh, but like, but now that you say it, a Kingsguard, we've seen it be used as punishment in the story, right? For Jamie, for example. And to an extent, you could see it as a punishment for Sandor, who's trapped kind of in this machine, mm. in this industrial cog in the Kingsguard machine. But maybe it's not really an honor for Dunk. Maybe for Ag. Uh, maybe putting him in the Kingsguard might not have been an honor. Maybe it was a way to temper him, right? To put him in a box in a way uh, and keep Dunk where he wants him. Um, I think there's a lot for Aegon to age up and change about him. And it's kind of like how when we open a Game of Thrones, we see all of these young children that are being groomed in one way or another to rule. Uh, Bran directly is big here with what we're about mm. to talk about with Blood Raven, but Arya and Sansa and John and Danny, they're all trying to understand their place in a great big scary world and rule people at a young age. And as well as these sexual desires, hormones, fucking, fighting, John and Danny, we see that come very early, <laughs> come very early in their chapters. And uh, I'm sure we're going to see more of that with Arya. We're promised uh, an advance in that in the books. George has already kind of spoken about it a little. There's so much to grapple with and seeing Egg from the sideline, from more of Dunk's POV, seeing how he learns and what he takes in. There has to be a switch somewhere that things change a little. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a bit to kind of, you mentioned the early kind of crow imagery and relating it to feast and everything. You get that right at the open when we have these crow cages and Egg season for the first time. Like you say, this is a, this whole thing, obviously all three of them are, but this, this one especially I think is really about Egg learning different parts of growing up whether it's ruling or small folk or whatever it might be there's i think this one is the most educational for him and we can make a lot of comparisons between him and fagan again like you say the start kids i think you get get that especially at the beginning when he sees these crow cages and he's not quite 
caught up on what they really mean and you can see a little bit of Sansa in there because he's talking about songs and what outlaws are supposed to be for children they don't quite know the reality whereas Dunk does already there's a little bit of Aya in there because she's had her own interaction with crow cages and realizing what that actually really looks like but mostly it makes me think of Bran because I'd forgotten actually these crow cages well it's not it's one isn't it it's one crow cage with two men in there just squashed together facing each other and they were assumedly trying to eat each other or one of them was as they died so we've got that cannibalism vibe right from the mm-hmm. beginning for Bran uh, there's crows there so we're immediately like you say thinking of Blood Raven his fingerprints are all over this uh, this novella and that's making us think of that link with Bran that he obviously has at the end of Dance and the kind of mystery we've got going there and as much as I think this series is about the Blackfires and giving us Targaryen history and setting up the dance between Daenerys and Faye Hagen, I think the larger overall purpose of the story maybe is Bloodraven. He could actually end up being the main character of these novellas when it's all said and done and we look back because we don't know how big of a role he's got to play in dance, but we know it's, it's probably, assumedly, pretty big. He's going to lead Bran somewhere down the line. And we don't know what the further tales will include, but for now we've got this boy who would be king despite all odds in in Egg, and Bran, who was kind of the same thing, he wasn't really supposed to be anything that important, and then Ned died, and then Rob died, and then he's got all these special powers. They're both boys who dream of being knights in the future, and you can even make comparisons in the role that Hodor and Dunk each play, and I mean, they might even be related as well. And then we've got all this Blood Raven backstory of what he got up to in the war and the general vibe towards him, how creepy he is. And at one point later, we'll see Dunk remembering uh, Blood Raven look at him in a memory. He looks right at Dunk, and that sends a spark down the reader's spine, or it does for me anyway, that maybe he already knows important people, maybe he can sense the destiny in certain people, and he's already putting pieces in place for what for whatever the ultimate end game is and as you say we're going to get even more of that when he actually turns up in the mystery night and i love the comparisons that you're drawing with bran and as well as his training i think right now you know bran's kind of in a sketchy place in his life but also <laughs> in the cave with blood raven um but yeah. in terms of kingship right and those who would be unlikely Bran also is the fourth mm-hmm. child, and mm. where Egg ends up getting the sort of education of in empathy of learning about how the small folk are living, Bran kind of sort of has that, but there's an aspect of which if he's willing to open himself and be empathetic, right? We're not at that point yet. It's hard for children. Um, and as we can see, what he's doing to Hodor is quite hurtful, but there's a mm. lot of potential for him to literally be able to understand the issues and challenges that people are facing because i mean in a way like that is sort of his gift right like to be able to see things literally through someone else's eyes if he can learn to to you know meet that out so that it's not completely taking someone over yeah it's weird if you think like growing up and reaching teenage years is is basically just having your eyes widened to the world mm-hmm. and as brand's going to get all of that like at once basically with very very little guidance or possibly bias guidance so i don't we, how that might actually affect him or mess him up or whatever it's going to be interesting to see i do think that brand has those very strong egg vibes in that regard and kind of his innocence, you know, Aegon has that innocence in the beginning of the Hedge Knight, mm. and you just, like, look at his big old dumb eyes, and you're like, ah, you weird egghead, come here. 
Uh, and Bran's kind of that way too, right? Like Catelyn's like, that's a, not a child, that's a squirrel. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's very cute. But also, you know, we've done a lot of talking after going through some of Fire and Blood. Eliana and I have talked about how Bran seems to kind of have that uh, Aegon Three vibes in a lot of his ways as well, as far as like the possibility of him becoming king and having this council around him. And even <laughs> in, in our Davos chapters, we talked a little bit about the possible parallel of Viserys and Aegon and Bran and Rickon. Right, if Rickon ever does come home someday, if maybe Davos spirits him back someday from uh, Skagos. So I think that we're seeing George kind of illustrate these fundamental, like in politics, like showing the politics on one side of this king, of these boy kings, and then showing the other side and kind of contrasting Bran in this role as Aegon and said what Bran would do if it was him and how similar his journey is, is really interesting when you look at the other child rulers we see, right? Like uh, Tommen, for example, right now, just signing things off, just bloop, and all the control around him. Uh, they both have very different situations, and Aegon and Bran is probably going to be much closer, Aegon and Bran, and how they rule or their influences. But it's curious of how this makes Egg want to start ruling better eventually being on the ground yeah and then how he gets to the conclusion right that eventually leads to the tragedy at summer hall i'd anticipate <sighs> yeah. that it's interesting because eventually we know that dunk does make it to the wall he keeps thinking about going there throughout this story because maybe he goes there earlier on but he does go of course with blood raven and with aemon to the wall mm. as part of aemon's honor guard when he becomes the maester there and another thing is, you know, I, I like that idea, Joe, of you, you were saying that throughout these stories, we're going to really build out not just Duncan Egg's life, but the life of Bloodraven and getting to know him. And I think it'll be also interesting to see, like, yes, we get a glimpse of him as Maynard Plum in the next story, but how is he different? You know, it's, someone has to change after being basically a tree over so many decades right if over a century right so how does that sort of thing change someone and we're going to get to contrast that in the main series with the novellas yeah it's a big it's something yeah. to we'll probably come along later when we're talking but it's a big question of like how far actually is he into the magic stuff and the sorcery stuff is it just a, a front they puts up at the moment to kind of give him this reputation and have everyone in fear of him and like dunk all the way through this is worried that uh he can see or hear or anything so that's that's a a purposeful rumor that he, uh, blood raven puts out so that people like it's a suppression tactic so that people don't plot and plan as much because he might be watching he's got a thousand eyes and one and it works on dunk it'll work on other people but is that how much of that is a front or is he already starting to delve into that thing as he come across stuff that maybe Rhaegar does later and is already thinking about the future or does that all completely come after the war? We, we've got no idea. And maybe, like we say in one of those future novellas, we're just going to start getting hints and start really linking past and future together through this singular character who is both, who's there both times. I'm also just curious how he'll mature, right? Like what is, he survives all the characters mm. that are in these stories. What is it like mm. being the last person of everyone that you knew and loved? And he, we see that regret. Yeah, I think we're seeing that play out in the books, too. Yeah, because he's all like, I had a brother I loved, brother I don't remember the quote of, but <laughs> off the top of my head. <laughs> well, and yeah, a, a brother I love, a brother I hated. Yeah. And I think that's something framed really interesting here because Aegon obviously goes the route 
to Blood Raven's influence, right? However, whatever happens, we don't know the murky details, but we know that somehow we got there. We know there are stepping stones that get us there. And he uh he obviously was influenced. I mean, they're kind of playing it and showing us Blood Raven's court is suspicious and everybody's on edge. And after the war, things have just been really crazy and people are afraid of that guy and things are just weird and he does sorcery. And Blood Raven might be playing kind of like Varys and Illyrio think they are, you know, the bigger bad role of like, ah, I know what's good for the realm and I don't care who dies for it to happen. And that's whatever. That's a character, you know, that happens in these stories. But it's interesting to me that like Aegon succumbs to that. So I think Bran's story is uh-huh. supposed to show us that he is mm-hmm. going to do better than Blood Raven wants, right? Like Blood Raven wants him to take this path, but Bran has to take that path and make it better and do better than Aegon did and not come to the same uh, end of like blowing up somewhere, which that is a consequence that is probably going to happen to King's Landing, right? King's Landing will probably go up in smoke at some point. Um, and Bran's actions probably couldn't have prevented that with being so far north and dealing with the others because that's the real threat. Uh, but these are things that are going to come up and be contrasted, I think. And I think Bran will overall take the, the road less traveled, right? He'll take the better road here and do the right things and he'll he'll be egg and blood raven, but better. Mm-hmm. 2.0. Let me add on to what you said there, Eliana, about how he's outlived everybody because you can contrast that to characters in this novella. That's what Eustace Osgrey is. Yeah. That's what Maester Aemon is. Even Dramatel, up to a point, he does have children, but he kind of forgets about yep. them a lot. It's no fun being the last one. It's no fun mm-hmm. being the survivor. The, you're supposed Ned. to be with your generation or whatever it is and it's not it's no great victory to get past all that if you're left with nothing obviously blood raven's kind of left with everything instead of nothing because he can see throughout, throughout but that's not what is supposed that's not natural that's not what you're supposed to want and it's not actually uh something to enjoy and maybe that's going to be the end point for Bran as well that he was the last in Winterfell he's going to be the last because he can just stretch through time or whatever happens to him but yeah I think it's it's just interesting that you hit on that point when we have exactly that character in Eustace coming up in a moment I love that comparison and I think that's one of the things that makes Eustace very compelling because in other ways I'm like fuck you Eustace but other ways I'm like oh you sad man (laughs) but a lot of what we're saying right about Bloodraven and the way that he is right is part of what why people think that he and Ares uh, are responsible for the drought. We have a quote here of, Many blamed Bloodraven and King Ares for the drought. It was a judgment from the gods, they said, for the kinslayer is accursed. If they were wise, though, they did not say it loudly. How many eyes does Lord Bloodraven have? Ran the riddle. Egghead heard in Old Town, a thousand eyes and one. Going back, even though we obviously want to keep going, but going back to the Bran and Blood Raven look here, this is, it just makes me think about how, like, I think a lot of people after the summation of the bad show were very like, this makes no sense. Bran is going to be a cop, basically, a computer cop. Like, how could you do this? Again, I think that really speaks to that translation of, like, Bran doing taking these tools and resources which we see a lot of these kids like Sansa and Daenerys learning to rule better Mm. than the people that came before them than their predecessors and Bran will no doubt do similarly but like it's interesting with the thousand eyes in one and that kind of police state watching and having that ability and misusing it like I mean it's already broken out and people are just saying that all over Old Town yes the maesters definitely have more knowledge and 
have more connections. So of course that kind of thing will get out more there. But it's interesting that just the normal people know. How do you live as a ruler when people know that you have that power? The sort of like panopticon carceral state is sort of what uh, it is being built up. Yeah, and it's very like Leto 2 and Dune, you know, like I get that. It's straight up like that exact process is that. Bran is basically an omniscient worm in my <laughs> mind. Uh, but... Uh, I don't know. And there's a lot of more foreshadowing that keeps coming up here, right? As we get more into the story, those men in cages, there's a line that I want to call out as Dunk surveyed them. As Eliana knows, I'm very into the green foreshadowing in the story whenever it comes up. Uh, REN chapters are pretty interesting in TWOW sample chapters, just saying. But this line, skeletons in skin and the skin is green and rotting. (laughs) First of all, Gross. But second of all, the use of green here is really interesting because there's a lot of other colors you can call flesh when it's decaying. It's ashy. I get that. It's usually more like a mottly gray, you know, like a desaturation of skin color. Uh, But it's ashy, so people can see it as green. But I think green is a specific choice, just saying. And with Dunk becoming like this guide, especially in this book, Egg is learning about this class disparity in Westeros firsthand in these adventures. And even here, uh, Egg immediately goes, wow, maybe this is about some robbers, this gang of robbers. And he romanticizes it. And Dunk is like, no, man, they were probably hungry. Just like Asha's chapters show us in A Dance with Dragons and Stannis's camp of the men who were burned, right? When they were eating dead, the dead, they were that hungry. Uh, he's trying to explain to Egg, hey, society doesn't really like these guys. They're nothing to them. No one cares. No one's going to feed you. Like, you have a table at home, man, that food could be always there if you wanted to return to it. And this is, again, so foundational for Egg when he reigns because the structure of Westerosi society doesn't allow for the changes that Aegon V wanted to be made to be made. The High Lords start to hate this guy when he's ruling, right? Because they're taking food off their plates and giving them all to all the people below them that, you know, they signed this feudal contract. Like, you you do owe this to your people. But I digress. His children following their heart doesn't help much. So, like, Dunk explaining this entire thing to him and being like, they're hungry and broke. Life's unfair, egg. But it's skeletons in green. The skin is green. And it's straight up summer hall imagery, not just because of the burning bodies, but because of these skeletons stuck within this patriarchal system, this feudalist society. Like, Rayella giving birth in the backdrop uh, to Rhaegar in this flashing green and spirited away to live as a shell of a woman, to be a green skeleton herself, right, who has to do her duty. Skeletons in green. Skin green and rotting. It's nasty. Just straight up nasty. But I do do agree with you. It's actually one of my favorite aspects of this tale. Like you say, this is where kind of Egg gets the idea of what the small folk are worth and and the plights they go through and how he should be serving them and Dunk's a a great role model for that. We can pick out loads of instances as we go. And it's really where we see him, like you say, is foundational. He's where he becomes this really good guy. But at the end, it's it's a bit heartbreaking in reading because we already know how it ends up. And even with his best of intentions, the system eventually does keep him down and breaks his spirit. And he thinks he's got to go to these other lengths. Instead, he's got to, okay, this isn't working. I need to get the dragons back and then I can do good. And that all ends terribly and he becomes his own worst enemy in a way. So 
it's lovely to read in real time, but as a rereader or a reader of the main series, it's heartbreaking at the exact same time. And it's a little bit like George in the purpose of writing these, like we say, is to get the Targaryens across and set up Danny versus Aegon and the dance again. But you can almost see the blueprint of fake Hagen because they're like the same. This is Varys maybe even got the idea that fake Hagen is this Aegon. He's learnt on the road and he's slept under hedges and he's learnt the plight of the small folk. That's a really big facet, apparently, of why Varys and Illyrio are doing what they're doing. So, I don't know, maybe he even got inspiration from this tale. Maybe Varys is a, a lover of history. That's a great point, yeah. And, and I mean, he's a lover of history and he's a lover of stories, right? And he's woven a story of many different kinds of kingship and, and what kingship should be into hmm. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I believe that he's Fagon, so I, I'm just going to call him Fagon. But yeah, woven all of that into him and is hoping that everyone else buys that same story. But I mean, ultimately, right, it's it's that question also of nature versus nurture, because to what extent is Fagon actually interacting with people in the way that Egg and Dunk are? And he's probably treated quite well by the people around him, whereas Egg mm, is... I mean, Dunk's like, I'm going to clout your ear. I'm like, whoa, chill out. Chill out on hitting the children, <laughs> Dunk. But... <laughs> I mean, even in this one, people, uh, what said later, someone says about Egg, like, ah, your your kid's so such a low-born guy on the road, his hair all ran away from him afraid because he's so gross. Like, they straight up don't get, no one realizes it, you know. They have to use his uh, boon later, as we'll discuss. He brings out his ring. But, like... He he learns on his feet on the ground firsthand, sees it very Arya as I think we're going to discuss later too. Yeah. But like Aegon, fake Aegon in the main story does not like that's the point. Tyrion gets on the boat with him and he gets mad over chess and spills <laughs> his board. You know, like he's a brat. He's an ill-tempered brat who you know you can put a shiny veneer on, you can dress him up in his Easter best, but he's still a brat who doesn't actually know. You know, they're like, oh, he is loved by the common folk and has done charity and blah, 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 blah. He hasn't walked a day in their shoes. No, he was raised as a princeling, told that he deserves this and this is his. Egg, egg gets spat on in this. He gets poked mm -hmm. in the chest with a spear. Like you say, multiple clouts around the ear. Yeah. I'm going to guess none of that has happened to fake egg and he gets like, he gets present drops whenever Ilio comes around and everyone's not, and you're not allowed to hit him or anything <laughs> like that. He actually, this he does get hit in this. Aegon does get a, a clout in the ear in this book. <laughs> yeah. In this novella, yeah. This is the one he actually, he only gets threats uh, before. This is the one he gets beat up. Yeah. So Aegon, Blackfire could never. And, and that's part of the performance, right? Because, uh, and we, we'll probably get to that, but partially to save his life. But he, he gets his family, like, shit-talked right in front of him. They're serving mm, literally yeah. a traitor and, like... He he learns Just, yeah. a lot of humility on the road. He has to because not it's partially a survival thing, and it's like, well, you wanted this. This is the price, and that's part of the eye opening as well. Because if you're raised as a, even though he's like way way down in the line of succession, he's still always been around. Apart from when he's been with Dunk, he's always been around Targaryens, and this is part of the eye opening that, and not everyone actually likes Targaryens. Not everyone actually likes the throne, or and mm -hmm. like he. Later, when he's talking to Eustace, he's really confused about why you would ever go against uh, Daron. He was a good king. Everyone liked him. And this it's a, a growing up 
point that no actually not everyone likes him people do have different uh, views on royalty and whatever else so it's just another part of his growth there and that's testament to him that he asked that question in the first place right that he sought mm. to understand that other side well and i do think again that goes back to Arya hardcore right in storm and in clash and like everything she learns on the ground and how she learns have to blend in and like in having to serve people that like she is unnerved by and finding out from all the gossip of like my brother would never do that this doesn't sound right these are all mm. lies and like slowly learns the truth you know to see that like war is war mm. It doesn't matter if you have a Stark banner or if you have, you know, if you're what banner you're flying, you're still it's still war. Mm -hmm. Well, after the Blackfire War, as we know, there was a lot of things. There was a previous novella, but also there has been a terrible summer drought, followed by a great spring sickness. It's killed tens of thousands, and it's especially bad in Lannisport, Old Town, and worst of all, in King's Landing. Dorne and the Vale didn't suffer from it, thankfully. Yeah, I actually quite like that we've got all these things that have been happening in, like, it's not just an empty space between these two stories. There's a lot of history going on, really important history. And I like that it's happening in what is supposed to be, like, pretty groovy times, really. There's no war officially, the rebellions are done, supposedly. It's the height of mm -hmm. summer, then this is what everyone in A Song of Ice and Fire, when the winter is coming, they're all mooning over it. Oh, if only it was summer, it'd all be fine, we'd all be happy. But actually, it's a, a majorly shitty time. Like you say, a huge disease has swept through the country. We've got this horrible drought. There's paranoia everywhere still over the over the rebellions. There's old wounds still open. As we're, That's basically what our story is. It's not a good vibe in general. Yeah, it feels uh, like this could be a look at what comes after the others are defeated, right? After the long night has ended, people are starving. There's no food, no nothing, no money everyone's dead it's kind of reminiscent of the war of the five kings in the fact that he specifically calls out dorn and the veil weren't involved mm. they did not suffer from it they are still well off eating you know their sugar spun whatever <sighs> in the veil with their beautiful huge tower from tiwao and you know dorn has their beautiful groves of lemon trees where danny was born no i'm just kidding that's a joke everyone i don't believe in any sort of lemon gate um I just like the regions where they're located in the Vale, it's probably easiest to cut those regions off, right? We see Liza do it literally and not allow people to go. And we see Doran choose to stay out of things and bide their time. But also them cutting themselves off from possibly getting that spring sickness. That's very interesting. They are the two regions that probably aren't very like kind to their travelers, right? There's a lot of death if you're trying to get to the Vale or into Dorne. Uh, it's not a safe travel, so people aren't killing themselves trying to go there right now. Yeah, that's true. I, I like what you say, actually, about this being like a, a snapshot of the future of A Song of Ice and Fire, because, assumedly, once this big unending winter does end, there will be a summer. Who knows if the magical element of it survives and it's still a years-long summer, but let's just say for argument's sake that five years or a decade or more past the Dream of Spring we will be in the height of summer again and there'll be plenty of Sir Eustace's claiming that they're on one side and when they weren't and vice versa, there'll be plenty of, no, I never supported the Boltons, I've always been for the Starks, how dare you question me, or Lannister versus Tully or <laughs> Renly versus Stannis, that's all going to still be there. Imagine how much explaining the phrase will have to do. So you can see a lot of uh, kind of, well, you can even translate it to a more direct comparison of no ice ported Fake Hagen or no ice ported Daenerys, the red versus black thing, even if that's mm. not how how it's being marketed later on that is basically going to be the same argument isn't it so 
yeah, I think a lot of aspects of this are really easily transferable over to not only current A Song of Ice and Fire, but what comes after. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's a great point of, like, it's going to be a lot of work, right, to rebuild this entire country, potentially two countries, in that way. As you said, there's a lot of the issues of those tensions, those political tensions. How do you get people to to come together again afterwards, mm. after such a devastating war, which, you know, we saw this already. We, we're seeing it There's with the War of the Five Kings, right? But then there's another one that ha- it, it hasn't ended. It's just a prolonged war. And in Davos's dance chapters, you can see that toll that the combination of war and disease has also been taking on people. And here we see that it's just all compounding. Like years later, they still haven't fully recovered. And a natural disaster, as we're seeing, is making those issues even worse. And even if we don't have years-long summers or years-long winters in the time after you know the long night uh, resurges or comes back, I mean, in our real world, right, we have summers and we have droughts uh, regardless, with, with our regular seasons, we still have natural disasters that occur and on top of, again, everything else that is go- that is going on. I think there's there's plenty of House Osgrays, like in our story already mm-hmm. In like by the end of Dance. There's houses that are there, there's houses that are on their way, they've been decimated by war, they've had entire generations wiped out and at the end, for a lot of them, they will just have been on the losing side for right or wrong and they won't have anything left and the political landscape like you say is going to look very very different in several different regions and normally we only get to focus on on the, the big ones we're normally privy to starks and lannisters who look over whole kingdoms so th- i think this is one of the strengths of a smaller viewpoint like duncan egg because we can look at the more this is why it's one of my favorite because we get to look at local geopolitics and like the the importance that one single stream has and how that is actually a massive deal for everyone natural resources and mm-hmm. the importance of keeping a hold on those but you've also got to play the game with your liege lord and the royals and everything else and we just don't get that chance or we do get it a little bit we get hints there and there but not like like we do now so that's why i think this is why it was one of my favorites or it is my favorite in fact yeah and you know as, as you were all talking about right that dorn and the veil were able to miss a lot of the plague uh part of it is you know uh, those places where it hit hardest those are places where a lot of people go in and out cities places of lots of travel we can look at our real world everyone at how how this happens and works, right? The Vale and Dorne, besides yeah. also being isolated, they they have a lot of the ability to cut themselves off because of the geography um, of the mountains, making that travel also difficult. And thankfully, Dunk and Egg were in Dorne looking for Tansel the Tall. Tansel too tall, but not too tall for Dunk. Um, and they were acting as sworn swords during most of the plague, so they missed out thankfully, on a lot of that desolation because the plague did kill King Darren II and his immediate heirs, Valor and Matarius. Yeah, a long time ago, Joe and I discussed this and we talked about the plague. We talked about parallels to Danny's White Mare. We did kind of an in-depth look at wartime and how that affects the realm and those who rule with these kind of things. And I'm going to be frank with you guys. After the last year we've had, I don't want to talk about the plague or the Pale Mare. I don't. I just don't. So if you two want to, please do. But I will say, before I toss that to you two, that 
we did get Fire and Blood, and we learned about the Shivers in Fire and Blood. And I think that feels very comparable to this. Uh, it comes to mind immediately on my reread. I was like, ah, oh, like the Shivers, with the death of several heirs, Valar and Mataris, uh, in the Sworn Sword, versus Jaehaerys losing Daenerys, his daughter Daenerys, dying to the Shivers and many of his men, which then it sowed very widespread chaos in the realm, right? The men he lost that started fights in the streets, and people got a little crazy, and it was just widespread chaos then. It was 60 AC. So we can see now in a time where the Blackfire Rebellion is secretly stewing right now under the covers, right? Like they don't know, they're not even realizing it, but this very story is about loyalties and how wartime problems are solved uh, and what that chaos and that kind of sown destruction through environmental changes does to people. It could threaten to sow chaos here too. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, even before I even reply to that, let me go back. Let me. I don't want to get you angry letters sent in, but I want to give you. <laughs> I don't want to get political, but I'll give a shout out to the leadership of, of Dawn and the Vale because geography alone doesn't cut it. And I know because I live on an island, and we fucked it up more worse than anyone. So it takes leadership as well. So uh, well done, Dornishman and uh, Vailman. Uh, but anyway, before I get myself thrown off, the. Um, <laughs> like, like I said earlier, there's so much that's been packed in between these two stories, and it'll be the same between the Swan Sword and the and the um, Mystery Knight as well. And it's not given to us straight away either. When it's not like there's not been a, a Star Wars crawl at the beginning filling us in on what's <laughs> on the spring sickness and who's died and who hasn't and everything else. But big changes have been happening, and we can we've got this mention of a plague, and we can we like you say we can link that to the shivers, but we've also got to think about what might be coming to current Westeros, quote-unquote current Westeros in, in grayscale or the Pale Mare. But more importantly, I think, is the fact that we know that this particular sickness has taken down Targaryens when they're not supposed to die like that. And that's like a, a new thing. So we've got the crown being weakened through that. And we've already had the dragons disappearing, obviously, long before this. The numbers have been thinned out because of the Dance of the Dragons in the first place. And now we've had all these questions of legitimacy via the Blackfire Rebellions, now we've got the disease as well, and the recent frequency of rule change. There's been a lot of different people on the Iron Throne recently, and people aren't used to that. So it makes the Targaryens look truly mortal for the first time, and I think Egg gets a kind of whiff of that for the first time as well. And it all contributes to people just being a lot more resistant, not only now, but later on to Egg when he becomes king, because the Targaryens can't push you around as much, they're not as immortal. And that's just such a shame that Egg comes along at that time when he could have done a lot more. If he'd been born, if he'd had this experience a hundred years before, when maybe he did have dragons to back him up, then, well, who knows what would have happened. But that kind of, uh, that feeling of having to push back, that's going to bleed through all the way down to Eris II, I think, who tries to counter that problem by going way too far the other end and uh, the other way instead. And thus we get rebellion and then the end of the dynasty. And that can all be traced in part back to this little story we have here yes absolutely and I, and I think it's interesting what you're saying about like that it's suddenly this time that targaryens are dying because we're seeing how disease acts as this huge societal destabilizer right because it, it's changing up who has power we see it even on the smaller level as as we've discussed um in regards to the scope of the sworn sword and i mean it's only going to get worse in in the main story with war there, disease 
is able to spread faster, has much more of a foothold, right? There's less health resources. It, it, It all gets exacerbated together. And you know, in regards to, I, I know that Daenerys thinks that the Targaryens didn't usually get sick. I, I'm personally of the belief that the Targaryens get sick just like anyone else. It's just that because of their class, they are further removed from places where there might be people with more and, and they're less exposed to the disease. And also they just have access to better nutrition, right? They have more food, which can help them be healthier and hmm. get sick less often, or they have you know, maesters who have studied uh, a healing so or, or good practices, so and they can stay clean, right? Things like that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But they de- they also really like that people think that they can't be because it de- it just gives them that we're better than you, we're a step above type thing. So they're definitely uh, like whether they actually believe it or not, or whoever originally believed it, they definitely push that idea that. No, we don't. We don't get the flu. Don't be stupid. You get the flu. We're Targaryens. Of course, we don't. Yeah, that that does feel a little silly. Like I, I think we've seen a lot of that, especially with everything happening in the world today. Of like, it turns out rich people <laughs> have more resources readily available. Like how some celebrities are skipping the line to get their vaccines or yada yada. Like, okay, come on. I wonder why you guys never get sick. But if it's true, then whatever. It's fine, George. I don't care. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Dunk has sworn his sword to Sir Eustace Osgrave of Standfast in the Reach, and he and Egg have been returning to Standfast after they journeyed for supplies, right? So we've we've established that we've got this drought, and again, it's just something a bit new, and it's just kind of cool to see people in the south, specifically in the Reach, because the Reach, they normally have everything. The Tyrells have all the food, and they have all the wine, and they're like the most heavenly place to be but they don't have it right now so we're reducing we've reduced to having to argue over a natural resource and like i say living off the land that's that's a a much more northern or above the wall type thing in the main series but now we're showing that when it really comes down to it that can happen anywhere in the right set of circumstances just because we haven't seen it in the main series so far the right revel comes along and the wrong um the wrong set of circumstances and now we're all arguing again over what is really just a little stream becomes the most important thing in the world so i just really like that kind of change up in focus oh because is that not happening to us as all of our water resources get bought up by corporations (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) sorry (laughs) (laughs) this is fantasy this is escapism everything's fine uh that's a great point joe sorry Yeah, that's a, it's a natural resource, and as we see in the North, and that is, I think, uh, as we talk about she-wolves of Winterfell and the future of Duncan Egg, and that kind of the Northern inheritance problems that are going to come up in both the main series and there, we're going to see it affected by resources. There are so many just big blank spaces up in the North, and uh, you see even the Ironborn head there, right? They want the resources up there. Yeah. Resources are going to become pretty important. And in that uh, that desire for resources, how it leads into more violence, right? As mm. people, and, and we see it literally in this story. That's kind of, I guess, the point. Uh, because Dunk discovers that the local stream has dried up while they were gone. And doesn't listen to Bennis of the Brown Shield's warnings. He sends Egg off to investigate. And they discover that Lady Rohan Weber of Coldmoat has built a dam, which is, of course, giving the water to her own people, but not to Osgrey. They're like, fuck Osgrey. 
We don't care about them. <laughs> All my hate him. <laughs> well, speaking of people we hate, we're given another Brown Ben. Already hated the first one, now we've got a second. I actually love <laughs> Brown Ben Plum. I like I him. I think he's interesting. Well, I stand I through. I hate him. I'll be the outlier here. <laughs> it's okay. Damn, I think he's yeah. so interesting, but... Oh, I'm not denying that. I, can I think he's a fun characters. character. I don't, like, love him. I don't hate him. I don't love him. I uh, I think he's kind of, like, one of those funny, clever characters. Yeah. And they totally have the Targaryen connection going, right? Uh, you got the old, there are old swords and bold swords, but no old bold swords. versus here, Dunk the Lunk, Penny Tree used to call you, I recall. Uh, and he's spitting his sour leaf, and he's just kind of a dick. <laughs> She's kind of a dick, but we are getting some of that uh, plum in here. In the next book, as Eliana mentioned earlier, there's Maynard Plum, which is Blood Raven. But it's interesting that we have kind of this plum-esque character and then uh, an actual real mention of plum. I think that's kind of funny. It's yeah, kind of funny. I'm just over here like trying to not say Sir Benis the Menace every time, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is oh, a menace. No. Yeah. No, he is a menace, and he totally is, like, he's chaotic. He's he chaotic is. people here. He's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm gonna slash your face, bitch. Uh, it's kind of crazy. He is. Well, we've learned that Lady Rohan Weber is a menace as well, right? Like, this is about to be talked about. Oh, that Lady Rohan, she bad. She bad. But, and like, sexy menace. She's grandmother to Tywin. Yeah, sexy menace. She's grandmother to Tywin. Uh, she's great-grandmother to Cersei and co, right? So this is how it does relate to our story today. And our friend Clint, who at the time, I guess, was not in Learned Hands, and now Learned Hands podcast exists. This is so funny. Clint is going to be like, I do not remember asking you guys this. I do hope he hears this. But he asked, drunk a song of ice and fire in 2018, the Red Widow killed those dudes, right? I mean, come on. This is quote for quote, Clint, just so you know if you're listening. I'm sorry to bring 2018 you back. I'll never do it again. Uh, but we did we did talk about this question. And I think that's unfair, is what I want to say. I don't think she killed all of them, first of all. <laughs> she may have killed one or two. However, I feel like there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of Miranda Royce going on here, right? And there's a lot of, like, I mean, old dudes die sometimes with sex. And one of her husbands was a little older. Maybe, uh, maybe his heart wasn't as good. We don't know. But we get... Through this novella, as she talks to Dunk, she gives us each of these kind of husbands. Um, she married six times. She's one away from seven. She could have had a seventh husband, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Just saying. Maybe she does. So, the first husband. <laughs> maybe. I mean, she could have, but she did disappear. It is a little weird. We're going to talk about that one later. But her first husband died when she was ten. He was twelve, her father's squire, and he died on the red grass field. Very Brienne with all these uh, matches that didn't quite work out, too. Then she had a husband. Old men are frail, I know. I learned that from my second husband. I was 13 when we wed. He would have been 5 and 50 on his next name day had he lived long enough to see it. Then her third husband was Simon Staunton. We learned this later from a quote uh, in, in later series. My brother was his predecessor, Sir Simon Staunton, who had the great misfortune to choke on a chicken bone. Okay, that chicken bone is suspect, Clint. I'm going to give you that one. It could it could have been poison. Uh, cough, 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 cough. Sir Rowland Ulfering was her was that fifth, fourth husband. Uh, and they talk about him a couple times in Aeswath and in the novellas. 
That was what they always said of those who perished during the great spring sickness two years past. He died in the spring. And later, Lady Hellicent was sister to Sir Rowland Ulfring, Lady Rohan's fourth husband who died in the spring. So she follows that with Eustace Osgray, which we're about to find out. No spoilers. Just kidding. We've all read this. And then marries Gerald Lannister. So at worst, I think she could have killed like two or three of them. Okay. Maybe Simon and Roland, but the rest feel fair and normal deaths, right? Like war, older guy. Uh, and then she left Gerald. Gerald didn't even die because of her. So I feel like maybe at most she could have killed four out of the six husbands. But I think this is totally just like crazy bathory, redheaded witch woman hate in Aeswath, right? Danielle lost and bathed in blood. Sansa transfigured into a bat. Melisandre's vagina births shat. Okay, that one's actually true. <laughs> but I think it's unfair, and I do think most of these were natural causes. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. It didn't even actually really occur to me even that she could have killed them all, because I just take that kind of uh, slander and just, like, it just happens. So I just automatically assume that it's, it's men trying to make up rumors it's, like you say it's always the same they're always magical in some way they're always husband or lover killers it's really really similar to what we see of daenerys in the main series what the yunkish persian they uh, like the rumors get all the way to Atlantis. it's just something that women unfortunately have to put up with so much more than men you don't get that much men slander in the main series and i'm assuming it's because men think they have to paint her as having supernatural abilities or aid like she's cheating she can't just be naturally better than us or in a better position or whatever else that they, they have to make themselves feel better by saying that she has access to things they don't or whatever it is like i say the youngish definitely did that they did not want to admit that a woman had beaten them and destroyed their entire economical system or anything like that no 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 she's she's uh evil she's magical that's why we lost nothing else to do with that and it's weird because later on Rohan will it, it should explain this reputation or well the reputation of being not only kind of magical or whatever but specifically the reputation of being cruel and harsh it's basically a requirement that she has to buy into to keep her position and her safety because well, she'll say to Dunk right near the end that she's got people coming from all angles she's got to watch like every fence basically and the only way to really defend against that the only way to be taken seriously or make sure she's not taken advantage of is to have this reputation she's almost got to give up her true personality to the position to the role she's been just placed in by by her birth and because she's a woman especially because she's a, a physically small woman as well she's just the natural target for those with ambition and that that makes me think of blood raven again to be honest like i said earlier i'm linking linking these points together a bit that maybe he did maybe he's already into the magical stuff or maybe he is specifically pushing that to suppress the rebellions to keep people off his back because he is also from a persecuted group he's a bastard so in his youth or where whatever age he's at now maybe he just kind of leaned into that oh yeah okay i am magical and i am weird and you better watch out and not cross me and maybe that's the same for shira as well she was also a bastard and she kind of leans in she has these same kind of rumors and slander per against her so i don't know maybe that is just something that they they really just buy into to try and counteract the prejudice that they that they've got and rohan's got a different type here yeah i don't think she killed her husbands i mean maybe maybe one of them but if she had killed all four of them i would stand <laughs> even harder i'd be like good for you girl yeah i definitely wouldn't blame her if she had killed any of them that's fine by me i mean that's how i felt yeah at first i was like i mean i did think i'm like i don't think she did that but then i thought about it and i wouldn't blame her because like 
they all were awful and against her will. And that's what this story pretty much is. At the end, she does once more something she doesn't really want to do, but she has to do. So we'll talk about that. Eliana, please go on. Yeah, I mean, it's a time when men across the country, right, are dying a lot. It's not just she she's more of just an embodiment of the, the current times. But also, you know, discussing the way that Blood Raven and for someone to get double back. And for Daenerys, I will say, you know, she is magical. It is true. She is magical. She has dragons. But um and maybe it is true for Blood Raven too, right? In comparing the way that Blood Raven and Rohan are described throughout this novella by others until Dunk meets Rohan, they are framed very similarly. And I think it has to do with like besides, you know, the the way that people think of the socioeconomic class and and who has power in terms of like again socioeconomic position it's also about like how these people are describing or regarding those who do have power right blood raven and and rohan uh, but they don't fit the mold of a traditional person who would usually hold power in westeros and i think a fantastic way example of what people think someone who should have power in Westeros looks like is when Eustace describes Daemon, right? Uh, and everything mm. as to why he believed in Daemon's kingship, which is mostly he had flat stomach and he was like really hot is basically what Eustace <laughs> said. I'm not going to lie. That's kind of it. Even though Daemon is a bastard, right? Because Blood Raven is bastard born, which already is a mark against him, as we can see from exterior against bastards at one point. Um, and albino, and maybe mm. people would have overlooked the bastardy had he, like Damon, fit into that mold if he was also like super uh, buff and using a Westerosi masculinity and was an albino. I wasn't gonna say like he wasn't sexy because I think that like it looks every time someone draws him, I'm like there's an interesting appeal there. Um, but Bloodraven's also getting a similar treatment to Tyrion, right? Tyrion is a man in Westeros, but because he doesn't like isn't able-bodied, doesn't doesn't fit that mold, gets a lot of suspicion, is regarded as also evil and potentially using magic rohan as well right obviously part of it is that she's a woman who's held on to these lands after several husband i think there's an aspect also of her sexuality right how i mean there's an implication right if you've been wed four times that you're a woman who has sex and there's a lot of i think fear of her sexuality as well and that she has the ability to maybe try to choose her husband and own that they don't like that and so yeah as you said both are regarded with suspicion and accused of witchcraft and again probably true for blood raven but regardless and the lords and the highborn men just they can't deal with that right they can't abide someone who doesn't fit their narrative of who should have power in westeros because it threatens them and their place in that structure so they steal they rest blood raven and rohan's ability to tell their own stories and make up their own and impose those on them and as you were saying as to the way that rohan performs um and and has to kind of step it up right with that cruelty and harshness is part of how she's trying to regain control of her story but she's also doing it by still playing within the rules of the Westerosi narrative of masculinity, and by that I mean like resorting to that exertion of physical and violent power. Uh, she does it by, you know, learning how to use a bow and arrow, right? When we see her at mm. the moat later on, she's in armor. And, yeah, that's cool armor. And, yeah, it is cool armor. And, and so she has to still try and fit in that mold. It's interesting. Uh, we can kind of give a pass something you said, Chloe, about, yeah, people have just 
died a lot in this area as well. And this is just something that kind of happens after war. The generations are skewed because all the youngish men have gone off and died normally. So we've got an overcapacity of younger women and then a bunch of really older guys who didn't go off to war. So you, like, you can kind of see it with Ariane a lot. There's just a load of older men that she could go and marry. Now, that's a little bit different because of the timelines are slightly changed there. But that's just a kind of byproduct you get a lot from war in general so yeah i think that's just why she's had a lot of husbands as well because that's just the time she lives in as you said yeah i mean it, we're talking a lot about this with catalan right now but i mean it's coin it's like being in business mm-hmm. and you look around and people are assets and their numbers corporations see people as numbers and in this time it's just like the end with the hour of the wolf and going south and that there's all these people that are just ready to marry these women ready to marry the men that are being brought up as commanders and in a way it is a reward right like here how about you go marry this little chick and go be happy and stop committing treasons against the new regime and we'll all be good it's a bargaining chip it's blackmail here's your woman and she's used to being that coin already which doesn't always make it right in this kind of situation in the society they live in but i think that it's interesting because the way that the story escalates as we move forward, Dunk feels like almost like he's gotten through to her. Mm. You know, like, oh, that girl Rohan, like, I can melt her heart and fix her. Wow, I can fix her. It finally happened. He reversed the trope. <laughs> uh, but that's like, uh, but isn't that kind of how it like feels? Like, he's like, oh, Rohan's kind of crazy, but she's a wild, pug-nosed, egret-style redhead, too, and I could fix her. And now that I've, you know, maybe we'll just stick around, Egg, and we can help her out and, like, then he wakes up and no, no wedding. Sorry, Dunk. There were wedding bells, and not for you and her. It's for her and the old man. You definitely get that you know? vibe She's- when when they have their little parlay in between everyone. It's just them, and you can yeah, like exactly yeah. as you say, you've got this. Like he think he's got this sense of like uh, everyone around here is mental, but you and me, we know what's going on, don't we? We <laughs> let them do whatever they want. They can have let, let them have the stream, and we'll just be above it all and do whatever we like but that's not it because she's still in that club right like she is still a part of this club she still has to follow society's rules she can't just run away with you dunk which i think is going to give us some really good fuel for a later conversation but (sighs) the dam's not going so well you guys the water the stream it's not going great sir bennis is not helping things he's an instigator he is an instigator, and he's like, yeah, you guys don't want to take down the dam? Well, I'm going to cut one of you, and that's what he does. He takes his longsword, tensions rise, and he cuts one of the men of Rohan's service. Yes, and as Egg reviles at the acts earlier of the men in the cage, and Dunk teaches him, some lords or those with power just like to torture men for fun, uh, beyond you know the, the skewed rules. Well, Bennis is an example of that. He's not a lord, but he's someone who has power and is just like, fuck your face. <laughs> he's Bennis is an interesting, this old Bennis the Menace guy. He just a, a little little bit of in, information for you. The Dennis the Menace that we have over here in the Beano, he turned 70 this week. So if I bring nothing else to the podcast, your listeners can go away of having learned something. He's 70 years old. But anyway, <laughs> this one, this Menace, he he is an interesting character, especially at the beginning when you don't have all the all the information, the backstory, and why we don't really get an explanation of why he's like this, but we definitely don't have any right here. And he kind of strikes me at the beginning as what Robert Baratheon could have become if he was if he wasn't mm. a Baratheon, if he'd just been a hedge knight, because he either doesn't want to do anything or he wants to fight, and there's no in between. 
either leave me alone completely or I'm, like you say, going to bully someone. Although he probably is a bit more of a bully than Robert. But still, a bully is what he is. And he takes this opportunity to have some good old sadistic fun. And you know that he instantly knows how wrong it was because he's already wishing that he'd killed all the witnesses like like that thing that comes up in skyrim or, or red dead all witnesses died your your <laughs> little meter doesn't change and um, and even though i don't think killing all of the witnesses would have really saved him i think rohan probably would have put two and two together and thought oh where are all my diggers why are they yeah. all dead but anyway he he knows the potential fallout he knows they're on cold moat land that they're uninvited and we know he doesn't actually care about so eustace or honor or anything like that but he still does it and that, that is often the way unfortunately dunk comes along as this peacekeeping he's discovering force he's not trying to kick anything off but bennis next to him he basically kicks off like an international incident and we spend the rest of the story dealing with this and i think mm-hmm. actually bennis and eustace they're kind of similar in a way they are two guys who've given up in various ways they've wound up with a future that they didn't want obviously they have this general apathy towards life and they both keep a, a kind of personal pride of sorts as well and later on i'm sure we'll discuss they even kind of especially in eustace's case invite a death by sword rather than just continuing to waste away together it's weird because one of them is born with the silver spoon and one of them's from the hedge and maybe Bennis has always been like this but maybe he once he was different so yeah i just think that's that's pretty interesting to me. And so the, the irony of it is that in the end, they both semi-end up with what they want. Bennis on a lesser scale, sure, but he doesn't lose. It could have been a lot worse for him. So to me, that brings up a lot of the themes of justice we get in this story. And I have to ask if there actually is any, because it's not. It's definitely not readily apparent anyway. So you have to really ask that question. Your perspective on him being a Robert character is so great. I, I did not think that until today. Like, I did not even think of it until today in reading this, and then I went and I was doing just a scan to see if there's any crazy theorizing we could bring (laughs) up from others and whatever we could bring in, if there's anything crazy I missed. And I actually saw a lot of people starting to say, like, almost like a Robert character. So I'm like, wow, how did I miss this? Because I I think it's interesting because he's almost like the antithesis of, like, the whole story, right? Mm. Sometimes seeking vengeance and justice, especially when you're responsible for the welfare of people is the wrong choice. Uh, Rohan and Eustace marrying at the end and seeing that without really getting their post-internal POV or their POV is a bummer, but I think we're really getting Rohan's POV when she discusses it with Dunk later, right? Like, when she's discussing all of these husbands, that's her telling Dunk what she's going to do. So, like, yes, he he's going to end up surprised about it, but her marrying Eustace is what she's telling him she'll do, right? Resign to her fate and duty for other people, even if it's yet another wedding to another man she has to start popping kids out for. And Bennis shows that he's been living that other side, right? Living in this world with no justice, taking advantage of it when it's easy and accessible for him, and that it's made him quite jaded, almost an antagonist, a villain here. And Like, we're on the same team, right? Why are you doing this, man? We're on the same team. Why are you making it harder for us? But he's showing that he is that other side of the table that doesn't care. And will instead of doing his duty to give us a better world, he's going to just raise chaos and do whatever he wants and not live by that societal social contract of helping people. There's a part of him that almost feels like the Brave Companions or even the Mountain, right? Who's potentially one of Dunk's descendants, so so yeah, he he feels like it could be the other side of that broken man 
thing as you were saying earlier this episode, as both of you were saying, uh, it, that does come up in Feast. Dunk and Venice the Menace find Sir Eustace cleaning Sir Wilbert Osgrave's shield, who lived during Giles III Gardner and King Lancel IV Lannister. Yeah, we get this little note here of, of Eustace. He goes down to his blackberries and he toasts his his sons that fell in this rebellion and, and everyone else he's lost. And what we find out later is that it's actually kind of a, a double. He's toasting them, sure, but he's also toasting the absent king and the king that didn't win the war and everything that could have been, basically. And I'm far from any kind of history buff, but I remember this stuck out to me when I was rereading for this podcast that this is something I think the Jacobites did for Bonnie Prince Charlie. Like they actually they would toast their king who was in exile, but they'd actually pass the the cup or whatever over water. It had to be passed over water to the next guy. I don't know where I learned that, but it did pop up pop up in my mind as soon as I read that. So yeah, I don't know why that came up, but it's also this little act of rebellion like this one thing that he can still do to say well we were right really and i can toast it and it's it's making the whole thing worth it in some way you've got to pay your mental price kind of kind of thing and again we can relate that to the same theme later in dance of a king across the water well no longer once across the water in aegon or actually daenerys we've got that whole friends in the reach idea as well but to be fair actually when i started thinking about that much of the main series does deal with kings or queens in um, in absentia. Like with, again, Bran we mentioned earlier, we see through him the hole that's left behind when Rob has to go down south after he becomes king. Again, Danny is obviously absent for the whole series for Westeros, and then specifically in Marine after Dasnak's pit and the end of Dance. John doesn't even know he's a king. Mance is away from the world things. They all believe he's burnt, but he's actually still alive. Stannis is absent from Storm's End and now Castle Black as well. And you could even throw Theon in there of the King's Moot. That could be a storyline in the future. So lots of absent monarchs in various ways. I do like the the idea of these kind of little acts of rebellion that you're speaking of. You know, we see it with Dorne, right? With the spilling of the mm. wine at the feast. Mm. We see it with even Jane, uh, Rob's wife, with her ripping her dress in response in rebellion. I like that a lot. Yeah, I like this comparison a lot and, and what you were saying about the Jacobites and I think that's a really cool connection and mostly because everything I know about the Jacobites only comes from like the three or four episodes I've watched of Outlander and haven't finished. <laughs> but <laughs> um, Yeah. Eustace goes on to tell the story of Sir Wilbert. Dunk and Bennis then inform him afterwards of the dam. Sir Arlen was beside him when he fell. A lord with three castles on his shield cut him down. Many good men fell that day on both sides. The grass was not red before the battle. Did your Sir Arlen tell you that? Sir Arlen never liked to speak about the battle. His squire died there too. Roger of Pennytree was his name, Sir Arlen's sister's son. Even saying the name made Dunk feel vaguely guilty. I stole his place. Only princes and great lords had the means to keep two squires. If Aegon the Unworthy had given his sword to his heir, Darren instead of this bastard Daemon, there might never have been a Blackfire Rebellion and Roger of Pennytree might be alive today. He'd be a knight somewhere, a truer knight than me. I would have ended on the gallows or been sent off to the Night's Watch to walk the wall until I died. So juicy. These passages have so much yeah. interesting detail that relate to the main series. And even here, uh, this is the first time we hear Gorman Peak's sigil, right? Three castles on a field. A lord with three castles on his shield cut him down. And lo and behold, 
where do we learn this? Yeah. Next chapter or next novella, we learn it's Gorman Peak's sigil in the mystery night. Signals sent by sigils is basically what George has given us here. He's given us little hints and another one's going to come up later that we can talk about, but that's a, a really a cool one there. But I want to talk about Eustace because like we said earlier, he is a really interesting character in a lot of ways. And for me, he's fallen from a big, really important house at one point to something now not really that dissimilar to House Baelish. Like, he's nobility, but with zero perks. He's just got this single tower. He's got hardly any men in his service anymore. He's got, like, three little tiny villages or hamlets. He's got a lot less than what he used to do. All he really has now is that diminished land and his memories and not much else. And hence, that's why he's so stubborn to admit certain facts and why he lies to Duncan, why he's not willing to give up relatively small matters, although he did say the stream is a a really important resource, but still, he's got to cling to what he's got left. And this kind of thing has had a, a huge effect on him, both before and obviously after the war. For all the advantages and privilege that nobles, and noble heirs especially, get born into, it does also come with a hell of a lot of pressure. For women, it's the pressure to produce children, like we said earlier, and produce more heirs because, you know, what else are they good for? That's the general thinking in Westeros, unfortunately. But for the men, they have they have the heir thing as well, but specifically, they have this avalanche of ancient history dumped on them, often from birth as well, of, like, here is all these famous names and capable ancestors that did these great deeds or conquered this or whatever it might be, but the the very worst of them kept the dynasty going because obviously you are still here today so that's the proof so now you have to until you pass on the responsibility to at your death to your son absolutely no one wants to be the guy after a thousand years of everyone keeping the name and the game going to mess it up and lose it all which seems to be exactly what eustace has done and okay that's a bit unfair like they were diminishing before he came along he's not just lost it all in one dice roll but to him, it probably feels like that. And sometimes it's because of circumstances outside of your control, but sometimes it's because of a specific choice. This may become about either by your design or more external considerations, but either way, it's a big fork in the road that can literally decide the fate of what is supposed to be your entire purpose on Earth. That's what they're told when they're born, is your job is to keep the name going and keep everything that you've got, or better yet, improve it. And obviously, Eustace made the wrong choice and he's gone the other way. And we can get into his reasoning later on when he does explain it a bit and why he chose what he did. But the guy that we meet here at the beginning is very, very aware, I think, that he chose wrong and he did mess up and he lost his family and he lost his dynasty. And the comparison we can make to later on is Jonas Bracken, actually. He talks about it in Jamie's dance chapter. You can have all these reasons or loyalties or whatever you might want to do, but at some point the question has to come to your mind of, Okay, I actually have to keep my children alive and keep my name alive. And again, it's another snapshot to the future of A Song of Ice and Fire. The Bracken thing is really interesting because in this alone, George again brings that concept up, right? We get this quote. Lord Bracken is dying slowly on the trident and his eldest son perished in the spring. That means Sir Otto must succeed. The Blackwoods will never stomach the brute of Bracken as a neighbor. It will mean war. This whole kind of civil war and last nameism going on here is pretty big. It's a big theme and George is playing with that that same exact Jonas Bracken discussion with Jamie here for sure. It's also like uh, first of all, I think I might have made my Eustace voice too old but whatever. Um, there's also uh, you know what you're saying and you can kind of see Eustace wondering like 
on one hand, he's like, did I fuck it all up? Which, yes. But also, he there's a part of him that I'm not sure if he's remorseful or not, right? Like, he talks about the... I think one of the, the really great passages within this story is where he thinks about, like, the so many ifs. Because he doesn't mm. think about it as much in the context of, like, then my sons would be alive, right? And he's like kind of bitter about some of the things and like well i had to give alisana up because of this but you know he 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 wonders like with the so many ifs he thinks of it still in that context of pride you were talking about the comparisons between Venice and eustace and he does it as like i mean if we had won then we would be called the loyalists and yeah. they would be the traitors <laughs> but yeah I think that's almost something maybe he presents to himself. Like deep down, he knows he almost kind of killed his family in a way. But he has to tell himself, "Yeah, but it, like it was worth it. Like that was the right thing to do, yeah. and we paid the ultimate price because we're so loyal, and that's how much we're willing to give." And that's why he keeps toasting. That's why he toasts specifically with the graves of his son and, and mm. sons, rather. So yeah, maybe it's like a sunk cost fallacy or something. Mm. There's an interesting thing in the end of this line, of this passage, and and that kind of also makes me wonder a bit regarding Dunk. Like, did he do something as a child or something before Arlen of Penny Tree found him? Like, why would he have been hanged or sent to the wall? Well, and I think that might also come as like, maybe it was just a thought to, I don't know, make us understand dunk's upbringing more i don't think he like necessarily i mean maybe dunk murdered a guy you know we don't know i don't know we don't know dunk could have been into some crazy shit i don't know what he, he does could just but be being dramatic I mean, but yeah. i think it's more like being a flea bottom rat you know and like coming up from nothing and like i mean surviving i don't really think it's crime necessarily as much as he probably committed survivalism you know i'm mm. sure he stole some food or did this and i'm sure because of class like that's a common fear if you have no direct i mean I think of friends I had in high school that I knew were going to immediately sign up for the military because they just didn't really care about anything else. They're like, I don't really want to be anything. I don't know what to do. And, you know, Dunk didn't really have a direction. I mean, what what did he think he was going to do with his life? He wanted to be a knight. He wanted to do good for people. But when you're born into circumstances that don't allow you always to do that and make you look after yourself first instead of others, I mean, I think that might be a constant fear in his mind just from his upbringing yeah we can almost like it does happen to gendry and, and lomi and hot pie as well like sometimes it's just promised as mm -hmm. better like hey there's food here and like you get a purpose and so like some people do actually try and get themselves into that life to end up on the walls as long as you don't go too far and stuff so i don't know maybe that crossed his mind at some point i'd never actually thought of that anyone you bring up a good point he does mention later that uh like if you tease people, you end up without a toe. So I don't know, maybe someone teased him and he took their toe. Could be. It's like a really we weird way of flirting. Yeah. yeah, he said that's like how the girls tease you. And I'm like, <laughs> should I be taking people's toes? Like, is that... Should I go over to my boyfriend and I'm... be like, mm, babe, let me just cut Different off experiences, toe. you know? <laughs> Different lived experiences, I think, is the key to understanding dunk <laughs> i just think people have different kinks uh, in flea bottom it sounds like just those specific women have a toe cutting fetish i mean listen you want something in your stew right in your bowl of brown you got to have some sort of protein okay mm -hmm. <sighs> well he realizes that through this conversation lady rohan's not gonna suffer the insult venice paid her sworn sword so 
Eustace orders Duncan Bennis to gather fighting men. He's like, we gotta, we gotta handle this. Go to the three villages, train fighting men, and come back. They find eight men. Yeah, this, oh, Duncan. This is funny. This is specifically a problem for Dunk. It always happens this way, right? Like, And you know what? I do want to say they find eight men, and that is way more than the six he barely found last novella. So <laughs> He's improving. That's true. <laughs> it's, it relates to like a thousand movies and TV storylines that we've all seen where you get the farmers in, whatever they might be, and train them up. They're all inept, and it's normal people that you're trying to make into warriors you see it in mulan and robin hood and the prince of thieves most importantly you see it in bbc's merlin with and actually joe dempsey's <laughs> in that episode slash gendry so we know that makes sense so good yeah and but so we all like first time readers they think naturally oh, i know where this is going like they train them up and somehow the plucky guys use some tricks and they defeat the bad guys but obviously george is not ever so simple a writer he's going to give it his own spin and we don't get what we expected and someone finally does realise that, in reality, this is not a good idea. And it's actually almost just a straight-up sacrifice for the sake of ego. So they think, well, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we should actually come up with a different plan. Yeah, George really turns the whole... I mean, this is, right, at, at first, the Sworn Sword seems like it's an underdog tale. That hmm. that the Osgreys are this underdog beaten down. like, And, and that the bad Webbers over there, right, have taken everything and that's what you you were talking about right like the, that training up story and people love underdog stories but then you find out like as you said like this is gonna get them killed and then you find out wait no the osgrays fucked up yeah it's weird because you open and you think especially because of dunk's judgment right like you think it's just gonna be a great tale about how Eustace Osgrey, who he has chosen to serve as a good guy just like sir arlen or you know you hope for the best for them but that it's like revealed that ah, too prideful, has to humble himself a little and still wins. He projected his dad onto his, his. I am calling Arlen his dad. He projected his dad onto Eustace. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Mm. He jawed it. He totally jawed it. He tried. Well, he tried to, but then turns out Eustace is like, I'm not your daddy. All my sons are dead. <laughs> oh. I do love this passage that I think we should bring in because Egg is a sweet boy who does come to care about the small folk. And uh, it's sweet that he kind of brings himself to, you know, how could I communicate with the small folk and what could I personally bring as a job to the small folk? Like, what could I get with them on and that they would understand me on? And he tries to put himself in their shoes. And I just think it's really sweet. Common boys fight with wooden swords too. Only theirs are sticks and broken branches. Egg, these men may seem fools to you. They won't know the proper names of bits of armour, or the arms of the great houses, or which king it was who abolished the lord's right the first night. But treat them with respect all the same. You are a squire born of noble blood, but you are still a boy. Most of them will be men grown, and a man has his pride, no matter how lowborn he may be. You would seem just as lost and stupid in their villages, and if you doubt that, then go hoe a row, and shear a sheep, and tell me the names of all the weeds and wildflowers in what's wood. The boy considered for a moment. Mm. I could teach them the arms of the great houses, and how Queen Alisan convinced King Jaehaerys to abolish the first knight. And they could teach me which weeds are best for making poisons, and whether those green berries are safe to eat. They could, Dunk agreed. But before you get to King Jaehaerys, you'd best help us teach them how to use a spear, and don't go eating anything that Maester won't. 
I've always trust Maester. Oh, egg. I forgot. What a sweet I egg. I forgot that the horse was named Maester. That that tickled me. <laughs> I do love that. I do love that very much. It's like naming a dog dog, truly, or something. It's, silly. it's like naming a dog Septon. Oh. Yeah, like Septon the dog. <sighs> well, after a day of training. Venice tells Dunk, uh, we are fucked. <laughs> this isn't going to happen. We will not survive against Rohan's knights. Don't know how you thought this one was going to go. It's funny because Venice is the one who brings it up, but he's also okay with that. Like, they're going to die, but we'll do it anyway. But Dunk sees it as, well, he actually frames it as the same as any other noble conflict. It's a petty argument where the small folk eventually get screwed. Sometimes it is about a stream, but sometimes it's about a throne but really it's the same thing. It's the overarching theme that we see from Zone of Ice and Fire that the people, the small folk, they suffer because of the Game of Thrones. So it's the same thing here, just on a smaller scale. Yeah, it's a, a microcosm of a look, right? Mm-hmm. Egg suggests using his booth, his sigiled ring, and Dunk is like, no, it's honorable for him to save the small folk. You can't reveal your identity. Like, just be, be sweet and help them, and we're not going to use your identity here. I think that's really important of what he does and doesn't use that identity for using the targ card for good or bad and i love that his ring is brought back up here i'll definitely link it but there is a theory from paparati on reddit about liana's tomb possibly having eggs ring Mm -hmm. in it and i think that would be such a great connection i think a lot of people have all the thoughts of maybe there's a harp there or maybe there's this or some sort of secret about the pact of ice and fire or maybe dragon eggs or blah 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 whatever you think there might be there but i think this is such a nice small and significant detail that i mean it could help prove towards you know john's parentage uh, rhaegar was born at summer hall right amidst all the fireworks so there is a connection there for Aegon and Jon, and I think we might make, we could see that. There's a lot of symbolic resonance between the two, it, it, or like scenarios, if it is that too, of how it functions. I'm actually pretty surprised, being such a Tolkien fan, that George waited this long to put a powerful ring into the story. Like, <laughs> I had to come up at some point. Huh. Yeah, he had to, like, actually. He probably really, really had to stray from yeah. that, huh? <laughs> I'm going to put it in. First chapter, Bran sees uh, Garrett get beheaded and there's a ring. No, no. Put it back. Push it back a little bit. Don't put it in the first chapter. It wound up all the way here. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> we yeah, we, we don't really uh, see a lot of these relics in the modern day. So I wonder, I think, I mean, obviously we want to know where the Valyrian steel swords are. That's the big one of, where's this sword? Where's Dark Sister? Is it in the cave? Blah, blah, blah. It is. Uh, (laughs) But the ring is something that I just don't think is thought about. You know, I don't think it's uh, brought up. And I think that's a good one. There's not a lot of uh, Targaryen jewels or anything right now that we see. Besides Shira's, like, necklace, I guess. Crowns. Oh, yeah. uh, I guess the crowns are the next thing, right? That is jewelry. Mm -hmm. Well, that treasury is locked up good. And that does relate to what we were saying, well, both earlier and probably a bit later again as well, about why they chose Damon because he had the sword, because these symbols matter. So that's Mm -hmm. going to be the same. It's not a sword, but it is a symbol. So that could come up very, very important. Yeah. Dunk has a very bad dream, everyone. He dreams about burying horses, about burying chestnut in Dorne, and then he's haunted by Sir Arlen, Baylor Targaryen, Baylor Breakspear, and Valar. Uh, his dreams all swirl, and it does remind me a little bit of the the sad, honorable Ned feels right when he remembers the Tower of Joy 
In the dream, they were only shadows, gray wraiths on horses made of mist. All of this guilt is swirling in his brain. Yeah, it's quite the passage, this one. Like, Dunk has obvious trauma, and he's got a bit of survivor's guilt as well going on. And he obviously fears a repeat of getting others killed. He has this sense of responsibility to others, and that's probably in part due to his size. Like, people who are bigger and grow up faster, they do naturally... Uh, take on that role a lot of the time and obviously especially he does because he's got egg with him and he's already taken on that role but we see it from a lot of other characters in the main series as well brienne is the clearest comparison yet again but john and especially daenerys they all have worries about leading people to doom people that are relying on them and they're supposed to do better for so all of that's a worry for dunk right now but it's also a warning maybe that like they need to leave because he needs to save Egg but then what happens to Honor what happens to all the people here so he's got a lot of questions still coming up and I love the connection you also draw with Daenerys and and that fear of what to do in regards to those people because there are shades of this dream that kind of remind me a little of Daenerys in the wilderness right in terms of Mm. speaking with those ghosts not literal ghosts but and also Jorah's still alive but I mean, he's dead to me all the time, but (laughs) it's got a similar vibe, but this, I don't know, this dream was really sad, mostly because of Chestnut. I was like, no, Mm. Chestnut, I mean, like, yeah, all those other people died, but I was like, no, not Chestnut, we already lost Sweetfoot in the first, oh my god, okay, sorry, I'm done. Are we gonna just, (laughs) sorry, I'm just, like, having a moment. Um, There's also, I think, a little aspect of what's going on here right he's digging his own grave but also since it is after the publication of feast perhaps there's a slight nod or reference to the grave digger on the quiet isle Hmm. that's a really great thought Uh, i i think that is significant especially because sandor might have connections as we said as we said gregor hmm. might also be a descendant i think that's a really great reference i think there's a lot of feast and dance and i didn't think as much of the dance qualities like what joe has been bringing in with blood raven for example i didn't really think much about it but uh with some of the davos stuff and the brienne stuff and then the Gravedigger, this does feel pretty apt pretty apt <laughs> The dream continues and we get some more heavy foreshadowing, <laughs> right? People of Standfast appear in the dream and Egg ends up buried under the Dornish desert, even though we know that's not the end, just buried in flame. Yeah, it's a bit harsh. In fact, later on, I think it's right basically at the end, Dunk will say, like, it's too hot to die. And it's like, oh, don't, don't say it because we know how exactly how they're going to die in the most extreme possible of heat. So please, please don't actually say that out loud, Dunk. And as for the... George thinks he's so funny. Yeah, George. I think you're so cool, George, George. but you're not. <laughs> you are. I love your hat. Anyway, as as for the act of being the one to bury Chestnut in the, in the dream, I think that's because... So Dunk will say after they didn't get to, they didn't let him, but he did actually want that opportunity. That was important to him, that he got to do his friend that honour and that and that he specifically himself bear that weight it it was his place to do so and that is how we met dunk first of all so like we can make that connection i don't know if you of you have read um christina henry's lost boy if you haven't you should it's very very emotional i just finished it this week but without giving anything away from that a large focus of that story is who should 
do the burying, who quote unquote gets mm. to in a way, and who has that specific place of honor and that final touch of goodbye. So that really resonates here that he wanted to do that for his faithful buddy. Yeah. And alas, he didn't. It's important. I will say about Dong, not Dong, I will say about Egg, you know, being buried under the Dornish desert, and maybe it's not exactly the same, but like, you know, a desert is full of sand, and Egg is just ash now, and if you think about it, ash is kind of like sand. (laughs) I do not like like this. I want to retract my coming onto this podcast. Oh my god, she's hurtful. Do you see what I deal with, Joe? I do this every week. This is why you used to drink uh, no, to just escape. Just <laughs> you to escape me. Uh, yeah, I was escaping my future with her. It's too late, though. It caught up. Here I am. Uh, well, there's no, still Chloe we'll and Joey. There's still Chloe and Joey. Oh my god. Episode one. The podcast of century. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely uh, something of that honor, just like Ned burying lady mm. right it was very important that he bury her north eustace is watching venice and dunk train the morning after all this and it doesn't go well again things are not looking great for our protagonists eustace compares the training to when his sons trained their fathers before marching off in the first black fire rebellion <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know this but it's a question of how far does your loyalty actually go? Especially, like, you're not related to the guy. You're a sworn sword. So what do you owe him specifically from your position? How long do you have to obey and just go along with it? Like he said at the beginning, obey and, and do more than what they asked and whatever else. But how much of that happens before you actually have to stop and say, no, this is going to get people killed? That's always a question that's present in this series. But he's, he's he asks it, and he's pretty ballsy of him to challenge his boss. You've you've got to love it from him, because he makes Eustace admit the hard truth of well, what happened last time, and how many actually came home when you did this before. It, it makes him realise. I I don't know if it sinks through, but I hope it does. That it wasn't just his family that he doomed when he made his choice of which of who to support. I I think that's a great point about the question of a. Uh... How far does loyalty go? We see Dunk kind of trying to find, like, I mean, where it does it. And he's trying to stay true to what it means to be a knight. And it's a question that we see Jamie wrestle with throughout the series. Uh, Well, mostly it happened, I guess, at that one point that he's super infamous for. What O's do I keep? And Mm. Dunk is trying to keep the one to protect people here and not try and lead them to their deaths as opposed to to whom he sworn his sword. And I think there's an aspect of it when you're a hedge knight, it seems like it's contingent on that payment of the lodging and and food, right? Because he's like, all right, well, I took four eggs, so, you know, it's fine. I'll, like, do some stuff for you. Um, I, I'm not completely done yet. So I think it, they can terminate that contract by just ceasing to take, I guess... Yeah, those those resources and being like, well, I did what I was paid for. Dunk asks Eustace if there is truly no other way, though. Like, maybe, you know, instead of fighting, we can just, like, can we just play a, pay a blood price or, or a Vergeld? And Eustace refuses to set foot, though, on those cold moat grounds. He took a vow not <laughs> two decades before. And Dunk's like, fine, I'll go instead. Well, he doesn't say it like that. He offers because <laughs> things are chill here. He should say it like that. 
<laughs> he's being a little bit pathetic, isn't he, really, for being honest. But get over it, and we could have all sorted this probably a lot earlier. But I think it's on the way, I'm pretty sure it's on the way, that uh, Egg starts talking about that he dreams of growing up one day to be a Kingsguard. So we've got another brand parallel, because that's what he used to want as well. And Egg's got no more reason to suspect that true destiny that he's going to eventually arrive to than young brand did and there's also some irony in there that he's sharing his dreams of being a king's guard in front of the man who one day will become the law commander and uh, it's uh, that's a mere page before dunk is gifted with his very first white cloak as well so if only they could have guessed at the the symbolism and it, actually in that same conversation george he gets very very sneaky when uh, when eustace is talking because not long before we actually get the big reveal in a moment when we go to Colvmoat, he leaves some hints for us because he tells mm-hmm. us that Adam, his, his youngest son, in, in what's kind of an ode to Edric Dane and Beric Dondarrion, who was the squire standing over his fallen knight, he was killed by a Smallwood. And if you look at it, Smallwoods were loyalists. So obviously that tells us what side House Osgrave was on. That was something I definitely, definitely did not catch before I reread for, for this podcast, but it stuck out to me this time. And then he gets a little bit more obvious after that because he italicizes the word loyalist and then we get a pretty skewed version of events from Eustace. Although it might be skewed, but it is rather poetic. Uh, Eustace can actually put a few lines together, it must be said. There's even a little bit of that Podrick Payne and Tyrion kind of vibe, mm. right? Of Egg saving Dunk. Now that I think about that into the conversation, like here later on, just Egg and Dunk's kind of relationship with his squiring, it, it, it's very interesting. And of course, you have Duck, duck. and Egg in our main series, right? Raleigh, Duckfield, mm-hmm. and Aegon. <laughs> uh, yeah. My favorite pun, Duck and Egg, which I don't know, maybe we'll see a repeat there, right? Like we might see something happen where maybe Aegon saves Duck from something. Wouldn't it be great if he was heroic instead of just a fake? That'd be cool. He, he could be both. He could be heroic and a fake. Yeah, but will he? Um, I don't know. We'll find out. Maybe. I mean, yeah. maybe he will be, like, you know, a great character, like House Osgrey. Um, yeah, I don't know. But I think that's a good catch about the small woods. I didn't even think about that. And, it, like, I don't remember every house, like, and which ones were on which side of the war. And I think clearly Dunk, right, who's still struggling to remember all of the sigils and houses, he sometimes has to ask Egg, who, like, knows all of it because, you know, he's a little nerd. But... Uh, he wouldn't remember necessarily off the top of his head if it's just like woven in like that. This is where you need a Sansa. Yeah. <laughs> She'd be catching that straight away. Well, Dunk arrives at cold mode and one of the people who greets him or like is, is talks to him a lot about things later on is the talkative Septon and he's just like my favorite. He's my favorite part of this short story. I don't know why. Just like <laughs> He's got this really great atmosphere to him. He's so friendly. He tells too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, upon actually getting to Cold Moat, finally, he realizes that the rumors about Rohan aren't all true. Turns out she's really hot. She's young. She's not an old gross widow. And Dunk's like, I feel weird because I'm into <laughs> In her. <my> yeah, <laughs> actually, though, it is. It literally is. Yeah, he, the poor guy. You have to feel for him. He's got—he's just tripping over his old his own tongue straight away. It's kind of uber dunk, really. He, like he says, "You have a pretty dress," so she's not even wearing a dress, and like he's just trying to follow oh, Egg's so advice good. to the absolute line. He's got no idea what that actually is going on. He's 
out of his face basically already is pretty hilarious yeah it's kind of interesting it reminds me of what sansa taught john about pretty names for girls like tell her her name's pretty uh you got little egg as a wig man he's over here like Tell her her dress is pretty. <laughs> also, wingman because he's a targ. Oh you get it? yeah. Nice. I was also thinking that. how he's a hype man leader. <laughs> he is. He is every yeah, time is. though. He's like, "Will you be my new mom? Will someone please be my new mom?" Well, he's always just like, "Get him, get him, dog!" Every time. I love that he's like <laughs> cheers so so ferociously for dog, and I'm like, "Oh, little egg." What a supportive duo. I know. It is basically Pod and Brienne, though. You know, it's like Pod and Brienne on their adventures and ways. I love that. He gets informed in this meeting. The river doesn't actually belong to Eustace. It's been granted to House Weber by Darren II in the Rebellion and taken from House Osgrey for punishment because they supported Damon I. They don't get water anymore. Who needs natural resources? You rebelled. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> but... <laughs> We do get more of that info in this in this scene of Dunk being illiterate, right? And more of that class uh, sort of commentary. And the lengths that he has to go to in order to pretend that he can read. And how Egg helps him out with that. And I wonder, like, when when is Egg going to help Dunk learn how to read? And Dunk's illiteracy actually makes him, in my opinion, seem to revere the deed that Rohan has even more. And sort of is like, but they had a piece of paper. Like, the line is basically like that. Like, they had a paper, though. And he bestows so much more power onto it than I think we see nobles do, especially in the main series. Because as we've seen from... Cersei especially, right? She's like, I don't care about this paper shield. And she just Mm. tears it up. She's like, anyone can write, like, anything doesn't matter yeah you're not wrong i mean nobles make up rules that only they sometimes live by when you swore a man your sword you promised to serve and obey to fight for him at need not to pry into his affairs and question his allegiances but sir eustace had played him for a fool he said his sons died fighting for the king and let me believe the stream was his yeah that's shitty yeah Mm. You sent Duncan. No wonder he didn't want to go in there. He didn't want to go in there for two reasons. Because A, he knows he's in the wrong. And B, because of the awkwardness from his dead son she And he's a liar. (laughs) And a coward. Big fat liar. Mean. We hate him. No, I don't actually hate him. They're characters I hate. (laughs) All my homies hate Eustace Oz. But yeah, my homies probably I I just feel for him. (laughs) My homies all hate him. (laughs) It's weird how quick the scene switches really because like you have this lovely scene of him and egg working together they're actually pretty like they they click they're in harmony they move quickly with egg reading for him you also do have like the heartbreaker that dunk moves his entire head from side to side because he thinks that's what reading looks like it just melts my heart a little bit i don't know how how persuasive they are i don't know if rohan is sitting there thinking i know you can't read this but okay i'm just not going to mention it but i like to think that they get away with it but then you get the like you say the switch from that nice moment to like the bottom of the story falling out basically everything looks entirely different which is a, a common mark of George's he does like to do that to us quite a lot but like especially in this contained story like, it's just been flipped all of a sudden and we completely get why he's pissed because he's had his like not only has he been put in danger and egg as well but his honor his word has been tarnished and he didn't know about it like he had no mm. consent over that being used in that way so he's pissed and rightly, sh- rightly so 
Yeah, that's a great point about his honor being tarnished because of this. Like, and yeah, I mean, he has kind of put Egg in danger. Like, besides being played for a fool, like, there's kind of an obvious guilt thing here uh, on Dunk's part that he would bring Egg into this, right? Because he's kind of put Egg into service for traitors, people who like literally wanted his line gone and members of his family dead. And it's made even worse when we like see what Eustace says as to why he threw in for Damon. Like, it wasn't actually just, like, so that he could get the lands. Like, it literally came down to just vibes. He was like, <laughs> I vibe with that. And I'm like, Eustace, you dumbass. I'm like, maybe he really is so useless. Vibes and stuff. <laughs> Tribe Called Quest. That's his, that's his theme tune from now on. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of that uh, Robert energy yeah. in this, too. You mm. know, like, a man that won't confront his past and confront the mistakes he's made and instead chooses to live in Acedia um, and let that consume him and take over his life. And it's like, no, Dunk is realizing being played for a fool and realizing why he was sent. And I find that uh, particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, Dunk and Egg learn that Rohan has to remarry soon or she's going to lose the keep and lands to her cousin because her dad's an asshole. Right? <laughs> there, are, there are fathers in the series who let their daughters inherit and she's not, her dad's not one of them. <laughs> Sir Lucas Longinch has been set as her protector, allegedly, by her father. But Lucas translates that into cockblock Rohan at all times and then try to marry her. Which is, you know, girls don't like it when you do that. Like, Jorah tries to do that and <laughs> it's just, like, not cute. Oh yeah, that's a good comparison, actually. I had not thought of that. That was a good one. Oh, you know, this reminds me of uh, Alice Karstark mm. in Dance with her oh, uncle yeah. and her, you know, chasing after her and trying to basically block her from having her lands and marrying her. Yeah. Hmm. It's, not, like, it's mean enough just saying, like, that you have to marry and whatever else, but the like the time limit he puts on it as well and, like, just messes everything up and just allows, like, long inch yeah. people to manipulate it and take advantage even more it's it's kind of like if she didn't have a time limit you know we could see it kind of being like the situation that liza has right yep. in the veil or it, it's also a little reminiscent of what penelope in the odyssey and all those suitors but yeah her her father's just really dicked her over here it has some of that reminiscent of a the greens you know when they use that time to plan over rhaenyra mm. and how like that little pocket of time while she was you know oh, being busy gallivanting giving birth very busy <laughs> but obviously a choice but while she was off giving birth you know using that pocket of time to get one over on her is really unfair and by kind of setting out and blocking her suitors as well even the good ones that that sucks for rohan especially because as we said she's she's had to marry this is her her what her fifth yeah. yeah. Sure. So, uh, Septon, Sefton, just to bring that cool guy back in, he also hints about the, well, he's giving like this great big speech about what's going on everywhere else. And he mentions at some point that, uh, that the Blackwood War is going to happen at some point. And I was just thinking that might be, I think we mentioned this already, but that might be the setting for a future Duncan Egg novella. There's hints of that spread throughout. And that would keep in what we were talking about earlier about 
the history of Blood Raven and figuring his character out. We could find hints of his birth or his growing up there. And Dunk also later says that he's never seen Penny Tree, so he might wind up there. That's very close by. There's references to wolves in the woods as well, and we know that the Blackwoods come from the Wolfswood. And I, I'm actually all but convinced that this was originally in George's eye line. I don't know whether we'll still get that. Times have changed since he wrote this, but maybe we will. I'd certainly like it if we did. Yeah, I, I'm wondering what he'll go on to do after She-Wolves. Uh, it, it would be so lovely to meet Betha mm. on page because they meet her current canon, what he's put in like the world of ice and fire. I believe they meet when she's about 19. So this could literally be quite a plot point. We might actually get to see their relationship blossom on page. Oh, yeah, it's not too far away. It is and it isn't, right? It's not too far away in yeah. their lives. How far away is it in Shut our up, lives? Yeah. A thousand days in one. It's not, that, it's not that many, you know. That's maybe like what? A little over three years, maybe. Or about three years. <sighs> anyway. Yeah. So the meeting between Rohan and Dunk, as you can imagine, goes poorly. Rohan refuses to break up the dam or take the blood prize. She demands that Sir Bennis is a menace who must be handed over to her or she's just going to go get him himself. Shocked and angry, Dunk's like, wait, what about my problems right now? I want to leave Osgrey's service. Uh, he doesn't because he realizes that the small folk, though, don't stand a chance against the Weber soldiers and so decides to stay for them. It's the same old choice we've seen a bunch of times, the chance to walk away or the choice to stay. It's another one we can especially relate to Brienne and especially relate to small folk. It comes up all the time and Dunk makes the right one yet again. Yes, I think that's a great connection, especially because of Brienne is also another one of maybe Dunk's descendants. Of course. <laughs> well, I think that one is confirmed, right? Um, yes, think so. it is confirmed. And honestly, I think it's got to be from uh, this link, but <clears throat> I'm just saying. Yeah, I think Kristen Trudeau, right, asked a question about it. Mm -hmm. The next morning, Osgrey, Dunk, and Egg ride to meet Lady Weber and her army. Dunk asks to parlay with... Lady Weber privately and shows her Egg's ring, proving Egg's blood and princehood, and then decides to cut his own cheek to make up for the wounding of her men, takes takes the blame for all of that. Another Brienne link, because she also has no more cheeks. She's going to have a pretty big scar as well, so we've got, we're doubling up already. Yeah. That's so smart. Yeah, he, he tries to repay that blood with his own, but that's not the blood she wants, and Again, there is something awfully interesting about this connection, right, with Dunk and Brienne. And of course, with Rohan being the Lannister grandma, it, it kind of makes you think the cousin cest might be what makes it work for Jamie and Brienne. Mm. I don't know. Maybe it's the cousin cest. It really might be. That's what they're into. And I don't know. I mean, like, maybe Rohan's into this because when Dunk cuts his cheek, I think he's also kind of flirting. Because Venice said that, like, women like <laughs> scars on men's faces in terms of him trying to justify what he did. And Dunks, maybe Dunks, like, is this going to work for me? And it kind of does, to be honest. Before Dunk meets with Rohan, though, Eustace also reminds him of the story of the little lion. Trying to urge Dunk to just kill Rohan because he feels that without her, the other side's power and, and their cause falls apart. And I think that Eustace really takes this legend to such heart because he kind of feels it's what happened to his side during the Blackfire Rebellion, right? That Damon died and all of the heart left the war. 
But I do think that Eustace is wrong. Killing the king or the leader doesn't necessarily always end it all, as we see from the numerous Blackfire Rebellion reprises. And as we see in the North, in the main series, Rob and Ned are dead, but the people are still rising for them anyway. It's definitely not going to work in this situation anyway. Like, in full view, everyone, I'm not sure what he is hoping to really get out of it. Like, it will just... It will end exactly the same way. He He's just framing it as a bit more glorious. So we spoke about earlier, he wants to go out in in something that means something to him, at least. Like, he's trying to reenact... Um, little the little lion on an even smaller scale because like what else has he got really like there's no other better way to come out so i might as well do this and even though it's not gonna work yeah he's also just as much caught up right as in those legends and and myths as maybe someone like dunk right if you're as you pointed out he's he's still going after that little lion legend he loves telling it to people sees himself like that and maybe that's why he fell for damon instead of Darren. Yeah. Mm. And look, I don't want to bring this up right now and really destroy all of us on the cast, but like, I don't know. I don't think that Damon necessarily was a bad choice. I think he, just like fake Aegon in the main story, could bring some peace and prosperity, right? But we do see that Darren's road to being a king was harder. Uh, It was strewn with complexities and things that just, you know, shit that you just can't fix in a, i mean if you want a king you can't fix this stuff okay like if you keep hiring a king you're still not gonna fix this stuff that's the whole point if we keep on in the same exact way that westeros carrying on for years and years and years westeros will continue to metabolize itself right and i think that's something interesting in seeing how these people killing the king uh not ending it like aliana says you know like that doesn't end it it's the same cycle that just begins again until a new pretender rises up and they get struck down or they take over. Yeah, I think George tries to make that point quite a lot, that there's no right or wrong choice and there's benefits to both and disadvantages to both and stuff. I think we could probably link that to Varys because he's, he's, again, trying to shortcut his way through that because in his mind he's gathered like the both of a Daemon and a Darren where they've got the sword, but he's been taught all this stuff and they've got a maester or a half maester and they've got the scepter and everything. He's trying to kind of um, like patchwork it all together just to satisfy, like tick all the boxes type thing. And it would be really interesting to see how many people that actually persuades and, and also in the terms of symbols that we're assuming like maybe Blackfire turns up at some point, but well, what would be a more important symbol for a Targaryen? Blackfire or Daenerys when she brings an actual dragon? And then, and then you get that whole question over again, basically. So that'd be really interesting to see if they can present what what should be like a perfect case for the perfect king. And then Danny comes along and ruins it because she has this thing that no one else does. Mm-hmm. The other thing that really sticks out for me with Damon's birth and him as a character is, of course, where he hails from. Everybody immediately you know, looks at it as, oh, Aegon IV gave him the sword, and he was like, this guy's better. But I think that a lot of people forget about Diana Targaryen Mm. in that equation. And I think that's an important bit of agency for her who was locked, you know, in a room by her king brother, her legitimate king brother. uh, And kind of like we were talking about those acts of rebellion earlier of the women who tear their dresses, etc. This was Diana's act of rebellion. I mean, 
whether she was skipped over, whether she, you know, this or that, whether she was captured, this was her act of rebellion was birthing this boy. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something people don't always take into account when you bring up the Blackfire Rebellion. And I really do hope, uh, obviously, the next novella gives us a great bit of insight into some of it. But I, I know George has talked about wanting to write from Aegon the Fourth's POV or of those tales more deeply. And I would love to know the Diana side of that. Mm. I, I know a lot of people find that a little overdone and I do too, because who cares about Aegon the Fourth? But I want to know about Diana's side of that so badly. Yeah, I'd be fine with the novella from Dana's perspective. I just don't really care about Aegon's. That's personal. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I, 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 don't, I don't think Damon's necessarily a bad guy, but it just seems like the reason people followed him, right? The reason that Eustace gives... It's just not a good enough reason for me. Yeah, that's understandable. I won't hold it against you. (laughs) (laughs) Rohan is impressed, right, by the behavior that she's seeing here of this parlay. And she's impressed by Dunk, you know? He is impressive. Uh, I'm impressed by him, too. Yeah, he's an impressive man. And she still wants an apology from Eustace, and he refuses to apologize. So that's kind of a standoff. Rohan and Eustace decide to settle their differences through a fight with their champions, Dunk and Lucas. Dunk wins, almost killing Lucas, darn, so close, and he almost drowns in the process. Venice, of course, steals all the valuables from Standfast while Dunk is fighting and runs off. Should have just given him up. <laughs> Man. Our friend Saren uh, Egenka on Twitter wanted to know way back in 2018 if she she wants to know if we think we'll see Bennis again. And I think there's actually a pretty big chance of that mm-hmm. in the future, right? Like Dunk becoming a Kingsguard. Maybe he has to bring punishment to him eventually. I'm sure Aegon will remember this moment. I definitely see it in a story where they meet Bennis again, but for whatever reason, he's in untouchable. He's part of some Lord's Guard or their, on their territory or whatever. And then he gets him in the end. Yeah. Maybe he's like an evil Doug Judy. From Brooklyn Nine Nine, just comes up over and over. Gets away. When he wakes back up after all this battling, uh, you know, Dunk. Nothing. It's not an end of a story unless Dunk has had to be in some unfair battle where he almost dies and then comes to. But when he awakens, Eustace and Rohan have married to clear the score. Dunk is asked to remain as their captain and guard at Stanfast, but refuses. I will say it's kind of weird. This is like a personal thing. I feel like it's weird to marry the father of the guy you loved. And I mean, like, I get that it's out of convenience and she obviously didn't have any other good choices. And it it makes sense on a very practical level. Absolutely. But on the other hand, the part about like where they connect and talk about Adam, you know, and her wanting to visit his grave, it reminds me a little bit of Robert when he first comes to Winterfell asking to visit Lyanna. But I do think Rohan mm. actually knew Adam and not and Robert obviously didn't quite really know Lyanna. But regardless, I throughout this, you know, and we've been talking about Eustace and the loss of his sons. And I love the way that they talk about it in terms of that that grove of the blackberries and all of the references to the graves there mm. and, and how it's written and and what Eustace is left with. I, just the imagery and the connection with the blackberries just kills me. I loved that so much. Uh, it, it, we're used to our fruit references, right? You have your blood oranges and Dorne to denote that sadness and that pain. And then it, it even reminds me of Renly's peach and Asha and Carl's peach, ah. I guess. The peach 
uh, as far as fruit comparisons go and of that beautiful, bittersweet savor of juice. But to, to come back to that whole marriage of convenience thing, this is some straight Sharon and Peggy Carter shit, right? Like, I guess whatever. I don't care about Captain America. Don't tell anyone. But uh, Captain America, you know, he, like, has a thing with both of them and then ends up marrying the one in the end and going back. But, like, I get marriage is supposed to heal everything, but that's a hard one. That's a hard one to then marry the man or boy you loved and look into his dad's eyes. Right? It's weird. Right? It's a weird one. It's weird. It's, like... It's definitely weird. I don't know. I get it. I get why they did it. But I'm just, like, I don't know about that. (laughs) It's a bit like we said earlier, I think Chloe, you said about, like, it's just, like, she knows it's going to happen, so, okay, let's let's pick the guy that kind of looks like that guy I used to like instead of Lucas Longinch or something. Like, like I might as well. I'll cut my losses. Yeah. I think you could actually, if you want to put your suspicion hat on, like, you could look at it that she kind of sets herself up for a win-win. I don't know if she set the wood on fire, but if she did, to maybe get to this uh, this result... Like, whatever happens in this duel, if the Long Inch wins, that's obviously not what she really wants. But before this happened, that's what it looked like was going to happen anyway. So at least she gets her honour defended and everyone knows not to try her. There's no more arguing about the bloody water, but she'll still have Long Inch. But she's putting her bet on, like, she's been looking at Dunk. She's been touching his chest, feeling the muscles, making sure he knows what to do. And she's betting that if anyone can beat this six foot seven Lucas, then it was probably him. <laughs> so why not let him have a go? And if Lucas loses, then she's free of him. And all it really cost was letting Bennis get away with, like, when no one likes him anyway. And then, okay, she does have to do this. But again, she would have ended up with something worse in the first place. So why not try? Mm. And actually, just talking about the. Um, the jewel is a it's a great jewel. George knows how to write one of these. We all know, and this is another brilliant one. But I actually like what we find out after the fact about Egg pulling Dunk from the stream when he's unconscious. A ten-year-old pulling a six-eleven grown man in full armor, stopping yeah. right out of the water. That's pretty amazing. We have to give him props for that. We said earlier about uh, Edric Dane Beric vibe. Well, that's really really clear now. The the love is obvious. Yeah, he he does really. It, it's endearing, but it is impressive. Mm. You're right. Where does he get all that strength? Is Egg like secretly <laughs> super swole, like later on? I mean, he has to be right. Yeah, I mean, he has to get a little strong, but he still is a little bookish. You know, I don't know. It's just like kind of his job, <laughs> I guess, as a later on, like, or if he wants to be a knight, which he does at this time. Coming back to Rohan's situation and how she deals with it. Earlier on, we chatted about how here there's a little misdirection, right? It's obvious that their meeting is going really well. They're making common ground and Dunk, again, like, it's almost that moment. Dunk doesn't necessarily think this in this point of view. We don't see these thoughts on the page, but George has almost made it implied like, hey, maybe Dunk could be the savior. You don't have to marry a weird old man, Rohan. Uh, And that's not what happens. Dunk wakes up and that is absolutely not what happens. It was never going to happen because the whole time, as you said, she's calculated and she's found, well, this is the best thing I can do. Get this big dumb guy to fight this other guy I hate. (laughs) He'll get rid of him and then I'll figure it out. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if she's calculated it all from the beginning, right? But at the same, it it all like makes sense. She's smart like that. 
It kind of just fell into her lap, didn't it? And she's like, okay, I can run with this. Yeah, she spun a web around it and she got herself out of her web. Two birds with one stone. And it almost makes me wonder, like, is it technically a comedy, right? The sworn sword, because it ends with a marriage. A little bit. Um, That's true. (laughs) Even though nothing about it is very funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's actually, I think, like, for me, it's one of the more morose of the three. But yeah. Mm-hmm. It's definitely like that usurping of what the reader expects. Again, like we said, like there's no real justice. Like no one, everyone kind of winds up with what they wanted, but no one winds up with what they wanted in a way. Like they kind of get mm-hmm. bits of both, but no, none of the whole. And we just kind of walk away. We just leave it and like, oh, okay, see you there. On to the next adventure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Barely recovered, Dunk readies himself to leave. Right on to the next lost lady of his life. Rohan meets him in the stables, though, and she offers him the finest horse she has and her apologies. Hmm. Hmm. It's a lot of weird band... Regret? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> should have hit it. I mean, they both should have hit it and quit it, but... Anyway. Uh, it, because, like, there is a really strange flirtation here. Like, they're talking about the horse but at the same time they're talking about Rohan because he's like saying things like no she's too good for me and I'm like okay so we're talking about both the horse and the woman but Mm -hmm. I'm also like it's interesting because even though he's saying that she's the horse and therefore like he wants to ride her but isn't good enough actually it's not because Dunk is the one who wants to be ridden because in one of his dreams or like what he's thinking about when he's talking about thinking about Rohan at one of those points and like he's think like during this exchange actually he says you've never seen me on my back or something he said in his head and I'm like okay so Dunk wants to be on the bottom and I think it's canon that dunks a bottom now maybe even <laughs> flea bottom and oh my god a flea bottom get out of here what's wrong with you so many things <laughs> so many things you know for a flea bottom uh first of all dunk is i, I was gonna say dunk's the one who got away but at the same for her in this moment but like at the same time we don't know maybe he didn't uh <laughs> Although Dunk is a flea bottom, he makes a very forward, bold move. He refuses both of these things, the horse and her apologies, and Rohan's like, well, take something of me. And they kiss very passionately, and then Dunk cuts her braid off so that he'll have something to remember her by. Okay, that's not exactly what she was offering, Dunk, but... <laughs> yeah, it's gonna take so long to grow back. God. But as we know from Cersei Lannister, hair does grow back. That's true. <laughs> that's an interesting move I, I was just going to say he kind of comes out well, into this meeting he's way more forceful and direct than he is through the majority of the story like he wakes up and he's obviously pissed about what's going on this wedding that's happened while he's asleep even though as we've said like what we were expecting really And but like he's so pissed about it that he's at least a lot more forward and like you say just kind of goes for it and he's yeah, a bit different in the end here yeah. Yeah, the tone does change Mm. a little. I know that one of our friends and followers, Rohan, will have to link this thread. She's done some extensive talking about uh, kind of the agency that Dunk, you know, kind of violated her by cutting off her hair. I mean, I'd be pissed. I've been growing my hair out for like three years right now, so I'd be really mad. Um, First of all, like without even just the violation part, like I can't believe you just cut my hair off. But 
this does kind of give Samson vibes, especially in the way that you had brought up kind of a how she could have calculated some of this and thought this may work out for me. In the Book of Judges, Delilah coaxes Samson Nazarite into telling her his secret, that his power comes from his hair. In the night, she orders a servant to cut his hair off so that she can turn him over to the Philistines. I see this brought up a lot more when we talk about Cal Drogo and Danny in the fandom, but I think there's some merit here, especially in that framework of Rohan being the deadly sexy woman, right? So powerful. And that Dunk easily violated her by cutting her hair and immediately Rohan goes back to her dutiful wife box. Uh, it's it's almost like putting the, the nail in the box, you know, killing her for the time being, that now she must go back to the dutiful wife. Samson gets killed at the height of his power and Rohan's braid is taken from her at the height of her power as well uh, as Lady of Coldmoat before she must resign and marry to keep her status and to keep her lands and her people. And I just think there's almost something really interestingly and negatively poetic about it in that way that her hair and her power and her agency is all taken away from her. Yeah, it's not very comedic. I mean, I do think that she'll probably be able to hopefully retain some agency. I don't see... I don't see her rolling over for Eustace Osgray. <laughs> no. And obviously, you know, he's the one getting the better deal out of it, right? She's the one who technically <laughs> owns all of these and, and chose this match. So hopefully I think she gets to keep some of that. And, you know, as you were saying it right about the taking of the height of the power, Samson does make a comeback, right? And Rohan clearly does. Yeah. So she eventually goes on to marry Gerald Lannister, as we know. Uh, and she disappears this is the marriage she doesn't kill him she just disappears in 230 ac and i i think that's interesting and specific because as we know if there's no body they're not dead first of all okay (laughs) there's no body found there's no proof and you can't prove it to me but i kind of feel like it's safe to say she the big blank space of time where she disappeared i don't know where i think i i think that space could be filled with dunk the lunk I'm convinced Hmm. that I think she and Dunk ran off for a time. Hmm. I am. And I think, honestly, Eliana's going to understand this right away. I think that is major parallel probably for Jamie and Brienne as well. Oh. As Mm. in, they probably will skirt their duty for a little bit, like Dunk may have done for a little bit of time in running off with her. Uh, I mean, let's be real. This story and the connections to Brienne and the connections to the Lannisters with Rohan... And then, of course, that we already know some of Dunk's descendants canonically from George. I think this story right here, especially in its feast dance parallels, is heavily connected to the Lannister and Brienne kind of thing going on. And I I think that we might see some hints of it there. I certainly hope that's the case. I would like to one day find out that's the case. I, I, I took a different approach to it. I thought when I wrote the Castles book and I had to do about castle rock and go through all the lannisters and we got to gerald because it says so he like like we know he killed his niece and i think it was his brother and that's it to get to be lord of castle rock and i think the wording in it must be the world book i guess says like they must died under mysterious um circumstances or something like that and then it says about rohan that she went missing in mysterious circumstances so i didn't know if that is supposed to be a hint that he killed her 
and like she, that was just another step to maintaining power or she was threatening him or I don't know why he'd have to kill his own wife but he's certainly proven he's not above doing that so yeah I don't know he's like bad for Lannister so he definitely could have been um could have been up to that and then I because that would be like the ultimate George why are you like this type of moment where we have this character that we're really interested in and we've got this story about and as you say there are possibilities that would be really really cool and it'd be really rubbish to just find out that oh no actually she just got offed by this knobhead Lannister who we don't like and gave birth to this horrible regime a couple of decades after so I'm I'm really hoping you're right instead of me but that was definitely my first thought (laughs) about Rohan what a bummer to end on it could be something else. Like, So I think it's interesting that in this story, we see that she's actually been exchanging letters with Gerald and has been quite fond of that exchange that they've had. Mm. And for her to then choose to suddenly disappear. And maybe a part of it has to do with the, the mysterious deaths, that you said, um, that leads to Gerald becoming the Lord of Casterly Rock and I actually put this in as a joke but now it kind of seems like it might be less of a joke in Avatar The Last Airbender <laughs> Zuko's mother disappears all of a sudden and this is spoilers I'm sorry if 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 you plan to watch the show and haven't yet please skip the next like I don't know 30 seconds but so Zuko's mother disappears and the reason she disappears is because in order to protect her children, she kills the current king, right, and and helps her husband become the king, uh, sees the heir becoming heir. And I now I'm like, is that something maybe Rohan Weber did? Hmm. I'm, I think I'm, I might be misremembering, but doesn't by the time she disappears, haven't her? Her first two sons have already died, maybe? I can't remember what's going on, but like nothing's good at Castle Rock. And maybe she could be involved in that. She could be working against Gerald. She could be working with him. Maybe she knows too much, or, or maybe like maybe she just sees a opportunity to get away, and there's Dunk, and off she goes. Again, I definitely hope that that's way better than what I came up with, but it could be like there's stuff going down at Castle Rock by by that point, and she's probably involved in some way. Yeah, and this was less than a year after giving birth to Jason, her son Jason, Mm. with him. So that's kind of interesting to be able to abandon your child in that way. Later on, I want to say this was in the World of Ice and Fire in the Westerlands. Lady Ellen Ray names her daughter after Rohan to insult Gerald and to really get under his skin. So that that little tidbit to me makes it seem like she just left, uh, which... Could be similar in the Zuko way, as we discussed, but there is another theory that I find really interesting, and I think, Eliana, you might like this one a lot, that Chris 24 on Reddit had put a theory forward, and this guy just writes, man. This guy just thinks all the time. I see him posting like stuff all the time, and I'm just like, how do you just think all the time? It's nuts. Uh, I just am like really impressed by his impeccable, like, every day he posts something smart, and I'm like, how do you do it every day, man? <laughs> But he has this theory about Rohan that kind of details out her husband's and basically that her seventh, because she's married six times and because seven is such an important number, the long story short gist of it is, what if she married the seventh god, the stranger, and she was sent to the Silent Sisters even? 
Since we know mm. Tywin has a uh, little bit of a, a thing for that, right? Oh, um, yeah. Interesting. Mm. So I wonder if that could have anything to do with it. I, I'd have to reread the theory. It's been a while. But I thought that was an interesting theory. And if we want to go darker with it, maybe that. I I personally have hopes that she bailed out with Dunk. And because her womb apparently never stops, according to this story, she got out there and had descendants that then, you know, mm. made it all happen. I don't know. But I, that's my hope. I'm just going to pretend that. You know, like you can't tell me otherwise <sighs> until it becomes canon. So I'm going to say that she ran off with Dunk and then maybe ended up dying of good health later. So the other connection i was just so at the end of the mystery night which i haven't read for a very long time so i might be getting this wrong but i think they're (laughs) like they're pointing themselves north they're gonna go and help the north fight the ironborn which is dagon Greyjoy, i think and victorian at some point says that dagon fought against the lannisters and the starks at the same time i think so if that's still gerald and Dunk's fighting with the Starks. Maybe they cross paths and he hears about Rohan or something like that. And it's like, oh, I can go and save her. I don't know how the timeline works on that. Uh, it might be completely impossible, mm. but uh, I like to dream. Well, and if we then come back in the next novel, and even if it's like Blackwood base, like you say, that might be four years later. Mm. And that might be when Egg and Betha meet at age 19. Yeah. And they he might just time skip it. He literally might skip a few years like that. That would be interesting. That would be, that would be, if he skips a time jump in either of these two novellas, Joe, you, me, Eliana are getting on this call and going, oh my God, it's happening. I'll be there. <laughs> he might for the <laughs> next, I don't know, for the next one or something. Like, I do think we have to get what, late teens egg, because as you were saying, the Blackwoods and Brackens, but also yeah. uh, the Nighting. Of egg mm. and how he's gonna have to be like, well, how the fuck do I do this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're not wrong. Shit. <sighs> wow, what a book, what a novella. Mm-hmm. I think that Duncan Egg. Uh, I mean, it's one of those things that I have friends that won't get into Aswath. You know, they might have watched a show or whatever, but they just don't read. They don't want to read. And I always tell them, like, you should just read the Duncan Egg novellas. It has absolutely nothing to do with the main series, which is a lie. We know it has a lot <laughs> to do with the main series and connections as what we've done the last few hours. But uh, I always say, you should just read this one. And if you like it, you should read the books. You can definitely read it without them. They're good standalone uh, Yeah, it gets you into it. Yeah, you might not understand all of it. People are like, oh, this is a fun series. This guy's funny and this kid's funny. All right. And then by the end, you'll be like, wow. I need more, and then you need to go read Aeswath, is kind of my thought process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though I think it's a it's a little more cheerful in some ways yeah. than the main series. Well, when you don't know what's happening. I mean, if you don't know what happens to them. Yeah, that's it's true. It's cheerful. God, what a story. Well, I think that about wraps us up on the Sworn Sword. Joe... Thank you so much for joining us. Please tell us all where we can find you on the internet, what's coming up. Take the floor. It is yours. Well, before I do that, I'll say thank you for inviting me on in the first place. It's an honor because I know how high in the the fandom mountain you guys are and you do such amazing work, especially I've been waiting many a year for you to get to Catelyn. I'm going to save them all up and I'm going to (laughs) devour them all at once because she is my favorite character. So I can't wait to... Uh, rush through your takes on Catelyn but everything you've done there's a reason you are so adored so I'm very very honored to be here and especially Chloe when you um, asked me to talk about the Sworn Sword so many 
long years ago, that was <laughs> the first time I'd ever spoken to anyone online or done any kind of podcast or I mean I had to put you through listening to me on a terrible old PS4 mic but that was still my first step and uh, I wouldn't have gone on to podcast or do anything really without that so that was, I have to thank you for that as well or blame you whichever people might prefer one or the other <laughs> Uh, as for where you can find me and what's coming up, you can find me at Sir Buckley on Twitter. That's the S-E-R George version. And um, the Isle of Faces, we will be returning soon. Like I said at the top, we've had a little break, but we'll be getting back to it once the patrons have decided what they want next, whether that's the preview chapters or Duncan Egg or Fine Blood or lots of, lots of other things that I've suggested to them because I have lots of ideas and very little time. So I'll be back around soon enough. Great. Yeah, you have a lot of things coming up. And I th- I didn't know that. I didn't know that was your first time ever recording or getting online with anyone uh, when you did the Sworn mm. Sword. So that's that's fun. All Chloe's yeah, fault. Yeah, he trusted me and I ruined his life. Mm. <laughs> I never heard from her again until a couple of weeks ago. That was the first time. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. Listen. Uh, you knew I'd come back someday, okay? I was just waiting. You should have taken her braid. Like dunk to come back and get you, Rohan. Yeah, I should have taken your braid, Joe. I should have taken your braid. <laughs> no one takes my braid. <laughs> Except for George, that uh, nerd. George <laughs> thinks he's cool. He's not. <laughs> As always, I've been me. And I've been me. And that's been he. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe and Joey we'll be back next month so on the docket of things that Chloe and Joe's doing <laughs> oh yeah I forgot that oh massive project I've got coming up called Chloe and Joey which will Joe and take Chloe. up all Chloe my time Joe and Chloe uh, for sure Joe and, uh, it's Chloe and Joe first of all Chloe and Joe A alphabetical B the disrespect oh my God. no I'm just kidding <laughs> well We'll be back next month with a His Dark Materials themed episode for our patrons. Uh, if you're in the stranger tier and listening today or above, you will be getting access to that as well. And for those of you that watch the His Dark Materials TV show, it may or may not have something to do with series two. So we will be announcing that soon for you. Keep an ear out for that. Yeah. And also, fun fact uh, Joe also read His Dark Materials long, long ago. I think it probably, you know impressionable age same as i and mm. you refuse to reread the book or i think watch the show correct because uh, it, it left such a an impression on you that you want it to stay untainted in that way that is true i've reread um, northern lights and the subtle knife but i've never gone back to the amber spyglass and it mm. wounds me so that i don't watch the series and i haven't listened to you you guys talk about it, even though i know that's amazing i see everyone complimenting you i completely forgot to congratulate you on all your work with that as oh. well but um i'm glad you're doing it because i know i have seen on twitter that you've brought more attention to it and i'm glad the show is out and more people are learning about it so they can be like me and be completely blown <laughs> away and yeah like you say it was it's so it's still completely perfect to me in my mind. I can remember it very, very clearly. I was only 13, but I remember it absolutely perfectly. And I I don't want it uh, changed or tainted. I'm quite happy with what it did to me then. And, and maybe yeah. one day, maybe one day I will. But for now, I've got uh, the Book of Dust to yeah. take my mind instead. <laughs> so I wait for that. Uh, I and I hope I uh, get to meet Philip again when that comes out. Because I did last yeah. time. Yeah. Very lucky. Well, thank you again, Joe. Thank you. We'll have to have you back soon. Of course. Yes. Thank you. 
Goodbye, everyone. You all know where we are. This is our Patreon. Yeah, they know where they are. (laughs) They know where they are.